So you can hear me okay, right? I can hear you great. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Can you hear me? Yeah, most excellently. Yeah. Okay, this, this is the this will serve as the pre-show banter, and um, <laughs> since we'll, we'll be talking a little bit about, uh, or maybe a lot, who knows, about um, UFO crap and, and stuff, uh, let's do the yeah. anti-ETH intro, which I'm sure you've heard before. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? take any up any more time with that the needs than we need to dave or david uh whatever you prefer whatever's easiest for you okay well i'll, I'll probably switch off here and there um oh, yeah. that'd be good yeah let's do both okay dave david metcalf is here with us today it's uh sunday january 14th of 2018 it's i think the third show um although i combined the last two shows with uh, tim been all into an end of year um, review for 2017 uh, that will be posted uh, presently. Well, what's going on? You getting you getting uh, instructions from your your CIA handlers? What was that? Yeah, sorry, that was uh, I had to get like a pre-show kind of rundown on what I'm supposed to cover. Oh, okay, um, okay, it was good. Just a little bit of code. Nothing to worry about. Don't worry about it. Okay, okay. Well, no, no, <laughs> forget, I don't worry. About you heard that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> 
the reason I wanted to have David on was that um, he continually st- uh, was putting up uh, posts on Facebook that fascinated me. Um, and uh, they were so um, intricate and intelligent they, intelligent, they started to scare me, which, of course, always attracts me to somebody when I start hearing things like that. Um, <laughs> and um, they had to do with... Um, Mm, subjects near and dear to my heart, and of course, um, he knows the uh, work of uh, our, our recent guest, my recent guest, Diana Pasolka, Doctor Diana Pasolka, and um, he was making some commentary on uh, some of her work and her last book um, about uh, purgatory. What was the title there, David? That is Heaven Can Wait. That's it. Yeah, it's a book about the concepts of uh, purgatory through history uh, and how it's changed. And then uh, something important at the end is um, how the it's kind of a kind of a medium message thing. But we'll get into that during the show. So that's yeah, how it's I, fascinating. Yeah, so that's how I heard about uh, David basically through Facebook um, posts and I mean, people saying things here and there. We found out we knew a lot of the same people, of course. Anyway, um, you sent me an extensive biography. Um, I did. It was too long. Yeah, I'm sorry I didn't shorten that for you, but well, it's three paragraphs. Uh, I told you, I warned you, I might do this. Uh, will you do the lazy, uh, the lazy hosts um, intro and and um, please introduce yourself and what people should know about you and um, some of the fascinating stuff. Like you co-authored this book, we're going to talk about. Uh, the devoted to death. I did not co-author. I did write the forward to the new edition. Okay. But, okay. You, um, had, you had a lot of, um, uh, input in, into the, uh, yes. into the text and the, and the, um, research yeah. for it. But yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I don't know. I've, I've been a, a writer and, uh, a kind of contributing editor for a lot of different web magazines since 2009. Um, I'm a, a contributing editor to reality sandwich and, I run a subsection of the site called Limitless Minds, which deals with consciousness studies. Um, most recently, I'm editor-in-chief of the Winbridge Research Center's um, journal, Threshold, um, which covers multidisciplinary consciousness studies. And um, Winbridge is, um, is focused on Julie Beichel's work in mediumship. So she's doing a lot of laboratory experiments with mediumship and uh, mm. investigating that phenomenon. Um, the journal covers, you know, a broad range of, of consciousness studies, trying to kind of tap into a little bit of what I was writing about in terms of ufology, which is applying different methodologies to these kind of anomalous phenomenon to uh, get a better baseline to start from, which is, I think, actually what uh, Jacques Vallée was mentioning in the intro. Um, but yes, yeah, so I've been a writer, editor, I've done music journalism. Um, and music. Professionally, I've done... Yeah, and music as well. That was uh, yeah Ben Chasney of uh, Six Organs of Admittance, uh, a quip he made to me um, when I saw him here in Georgia. Actually led me to just start putting stuff out. And that um, I've got some stuff out on compilation on Silent Records, which is uh, labeled by Kim Cascone, um, who is a longtime ambient uh, producer and um, musician. Um, so yeah, I'm all over the place. I mean, really... Uh, you know, to kind of sum it up is I, I enjoy researching uh, the kind of weird aspects of culture and uh, used every means that I possibly can to do that. So, um, yeah. And then what you mentioned with the devoted to death for, uh, I think since 2013, um, I've been working with 
Dr. Andrew Chestnut, um, who's the chair of Catholic studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. And we've been um, collaborating on a web project to uh, further his research into uh, Santa Muerte or Saint Death, uh, which is the um, uh, it's a Latin American kind of uh, magical religious practice that's gaining a lot of ground, and it's become a devotional tradition, which is one of the fastest growing uh, spiritual movements in the world. Yeah, that was going to be uh, kind of our first. Set. That's a nice segue. Thank you. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, my wife actually wrote a paper on Santa Muerte, and I think she used uh, Doctor Chestnut's uh, some of his material uh, yeah. for her for her paper. So uh, I knew a little bit more about it than just you know driving by the Santa Muerte Temple, which is about I told you is about I don't know three or four miles from me. Um, yeah, you're right. Down, you're right down the street from it. Yeah, from this, uh, from basically, I guess it's kind of a ground zero of Santa Muerte in Los Angeles. Um, yes. Yeah. But uh, it began, I believe, in Mexico or near Mexico City. I, I watched a uh, really good, doc- well, seemingly like good documentary on it, which you probably know about. Yeah. Yeah. It uh, it started in so the started way back in the the 1700s there's inquisition records for it um in the mexico city area um but yeah it goes it goes all the way back um and then uh kind of pops up again in the 1940s uh in mexico city in terms of love magic um and the the area around mexico city too because it's it's not it's fairly prevalent in um in rural mexico as well it's a little bit of a different flavor but um the the basic iconography and that's one of the interesting things kind of what has driven andrew and i over the years is the fact that it this is such a it's a complex amazing uh um, spiritual tradition that's grown out of these very strange influences that have all kind of woven together around this very specific iconography um which then uh has gone global um but yeah so so 1940s it comes up again as love magic there's some mentions of it in some uh, some Mexican novels. Uh, I don't know, probably about the 50s or 60s. And then in 1988, um, Adolfo Costanzo, who was a sorcerer for hire that was working for the drug cartel, um, got his compound was raided in uh, Matamoros, Mexico, and um, they found that he had been practicing some pretty heavy uh, black magic involving human sacrifice, which is actually how they found him. He'd gotten a University of Brownsville, I believe, um, student, uh, and killed him. And uh, that led to the FBI getting involved and finally kind of tracking him down. Um, but when they did the crime scene pictures, in one of his altar rooms was the statue of a, a Grim Reaper figure. And that's one of the first kind of media moments for Santa Muerte before she goes really big in 2001 with uh, Dona Keita in um, Mexico City bringing out her uh, public shrine, which kind of launches this public devotional tradition that's really developed quickly over the past decade or so. Well, I guess two decades now almost. Yeah. Uh, why do you think it developed so quick? Why was there this blossoming now? I didn't realize it'd gone back that far. I just thought it was a. I thought that the the genesis was that um, devotional statue that was. Uh, um, I can't remember the name you just said, but that this woman had put out in in front of her house, uh, and people yeah, started gathering then, around that. But I didn't realize that there was an older tradition of it. Uh, yeah, there was an, there was an older tradition. 
and it's almost impossible to trace. Um, you know, I think that if there was more people that were interested in it in terms of doing some serious research, that there might be a way to trace it, but a lot of it is oral and a lot of it's just passed on, um, person to person before she brought her shrine out. Um, it was a very private tradition and it was passed on in families and, you know, it wasn't what it's become today, which is, you know, kind of like a mass market. Um, it's tied into a lot of stuff, but, you know, you can go to stores and buy the, the icons and, and different stuff. So it wasn't that back then it was handmade, you know, figures. The one that, uh, Costanzo had was a handmade one. So he would have gotten that when he was initiated into the tradition. Mm-hmm. And that whole thing, um, you know, because it's private, because it's family oriented, there's not a lot of research on that. What we can do is we can research the more public traditions. Um, and that, that did, it blossomed in 2001 coming out of this more, um, closed tradition into kind of the public venue. And, you know, there was evidence of it before that, um, you know, there were folks, um, writing about it because there was some, uh, in terms of its folk magic aspects of it, it was crossing over the border as people were coming over, um, both as a kind of like protection for folks that were coming over and that, uh, it's heavily involved in love magic. So, you know, to hold relationships together. So when you have situations where families were being displaced and that, it would, you know, it would be the patron that you would want to, that a woman specifically would want to go to, to make sure her husband was acting right <laughs> when he was away. Yeah, but the uh, the um, confusion somebody might have is that uh, this is a, a Catholic sect or part of the Catholic religion, and it's not. It's not really at all, right? No. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, it's so. It, there's an interesting thing with Catholicism, which um, it, it's. I mean, it happens in every kind of uh, you know main mainline organizational religious body um, where you've got these kind of the interpretation at the administrative level is often quite different than what the interpretation is at the ground level. And in Catholicism, because it's so widespread and it's been around for so long, the popular Catholicism is, is very different than uh, the, you know, the kind of administrational theological Catholicism. And so you get a lot of these local saints and uh, local figures. And so when it was a when it was a family tradition, um, you know, most of those folks didn't consider themselves non-practicing Catholics. They considered themselves practicing Catholics, and this just happened to be part of their practice that they didn't really, you know, bring into the church. So um, now, with figures like Enriqueta Vargas um, in Tultalan, uh, who has San Muerte International, there's a, a kind of focused effort to bring it out as its own tradition. Um, but at no time was it ever, you know, an Orthodox accepted thing. But it didn't even grow out of the Catholic religion. It it came, it, it's a completely different, um, what, tradition, a completely different, uh, not even a branch of Catholicism. It's It, I believe, traces itself back to the Aztec goddess of death, or one of the goddesses that uh, has dominion over death in, in, in addition to other things. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, and that's and that again, that's one of the really fascinating things about this is that um, yes and no. So hmm. you have a situation in Latin America where there's a there's a pre-existing death culture and a pre-existing cosmology of death, which exists in the metaphysics of death, um, which blends in with the 
um, kind of Catholic influences and then, um, you know, the various influences that flow through because you've got, you know, Mexico during the time of the revolution had a heavy spiritualist presence. So there was a lot of spiritualism. Um, there's a lot of influence from new thought. Uh, well, it was worldwide at that point. So I guess that couldn't have helped be, be, um, influenced. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that all kind of, you know, drips in there. And so when, when Santa Muerte, what we see today is it's its own, it's its own thing. It doesn't really have roots like that. You know, it's the, the way that the tradition is practiced is completely Catholic. So the offerings, the, um, you know, they've got novenas that are associated with her, which is one of the things that was, um, from the forties was this novena, um, mm-hmm. to, to pray for her to come and, um, you know, bring a lost lover back or a, a straying lover back. So, um, you know, it's in terms of its devotional practice, very Catholic oriented in terms of the influences that flow in, because you've got the, um, kind of like Mexican identity movement aspects of it. Um, right. those start to come in that, that add that, that extra, you know, trying to look back to Aztec, um, traditions and that, which then now now influences it. Um, but in terms of the basic practice that came up through time, it's a fairly standard, um, popular Catholic magic tradition. You know? Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Because I was I was wondering. I was talking to my wife about this, and she she said that it never really been Catholic. And I said, well, it kind of grew out of the soil of Catholicism, at least the the, the version we know now. And I couldn't yeah. figure out if it was a true syncretism of Catholicism and something else, or Catholicism and Aztec, ancient Aztec beliefs, or if it was more of one than the other. But it sounds like some kind of food that you get from some country, which like <laughs> three or four different cultures go into it. You yeah. can't tell what it is anymore, but it's that country's food now. Yeah, that is exactly. Yeah, that is that is a that's a great description of it because it's very organic. It's grown out very organic. I know, you know, in terms of uh, de- like individual devotees, each person has a different way that they re- they connect to it because it's a decentralized tradition. There's no orthodoxy to it. So different folks have different ways that they approach her, and so you know, um, one person will say that you know they approach her as a, a kind of rebirth of this Aztec goddess of death, or, you know, another person will approach her as the angel of death. Um, and that, that again is kind of, uh, what was now that it's hit this kind of popular market, um, especially with, with the internet, um, you get like this proliferation of these differing beliefs. Whereas in the past, since it was passed familially and you would be given oral instructions, you know, person to person Mm -hmm. that wouldn't happen. They would be given the origin story. You would be given the, you know, these things, and those would all be tied to the devotional tradition. Whereas now, folks, a lot of them, especially in the United States, are getting it. Well, and even in Mexico, they're getting it from books that they buy from, um, you know, a local botanica, which is a, a Santeria supply shop or a local metaphysical store. Um, you know, they've got these kind of cheap pamphlets like the Santa Muerte Bible and that yeah. and that has instructions on how to do devotions and each of those have a different origin story too depending on what she buys so yeah. there's a lot of diversity in it do all the, one uh, of the things I was gonna, go ahead I was going to say too with the um, with the, the origin of her one of the reason that uh, Andrew has kind of traced it back to uh, specifically a Catholic tradition in in the most part of its development is that it's fairly clear that what happened was when the, um, 
there was when the missionaries came over, they were presenting these passion plays that had the figure of death displayed in it. And then there was a um so that the they were in that was part of the religious message that was being portrayed. So you have the the existing culture having this goddess of death, and then you have these passion plays that are showing death in relation to uh, you know, Christ's crucifixion. So that sort of interplay it wasn't that the people were trying to hide their original belief. They thought they were recognizing their original belief and what they were being told and then started to carry that through. And then there was a, a strange situation which, uh, with an icon of uh, Bernard uh, de Clairvaux, who is uh, actually the guy who um, gave the, the, the approval document for the Knights Templar, but he had a, a chapel in Mexico that for some reason the icon kind of deteriorated and looked like a skeleton. <laughs> so that that became one of the first instances of that. And then there's some other figures too. There's a Dona Sebastiana, which is a, a figure of death riding a cart. So there's a lot of these different figures that kind of blend into it. And there's not enough um, you know textual evidence that we can look at from those time periods, you know, up until you know re- fairly recently, to really trace where these things kind of blended in. You know, and that's the thing with oral traditions is you just can't, unless you've got a, a lasting culture that carries that on, those things disappear, and all you've got is what it is now. Yeah, it would seem like uh, um, Mexico would be the kind of place that would be ground zero for this, because uh, as you're describing to me this, this statue that deteriorated, um, there's a book, I can't remember the name of the, the guy that wrote it or the title of the book. It was about it. It was a journalist that just um, journeyed through the uh, Sierra, the Sierra Nevadas of Mexico, um, looking at these little towns, um, probably at, at uh, some risk to his life a lot of the time. Um, oh, what was it called? I think it was called God's, what is it? It was, it was a very sacrilegious title. It was really funny. Sorry, I don't remember. <laughs> anyway, but the thing is that he, what he, uh, the, the scene I was thinking of was that um, there was a, uh, I guess there was a statue uh, of a infant Christ in one of the churches, and somebody had come in and put um, Smurf stickers on his eyes, like those little, <laughs> little blue Smurfs, and that, and he said, "Why did you do that?" And the, the, they, I think what the answer was was that I don't think Jesus wants to see what's going on in this town. Um, yeah, but the yeah, thing is, you exactly. know, they didn't yeah. paint them over. They didn't put a blindfold on them. They just took what was right there and figured that was fine. Yeah. It just, you know, it, I don't care that it's. I don't care about the symbolism of the stupid Smurfs. At least it's covering Jesus's eyes up, so he has, yeah, they, can't see all this. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. yeah so what you know, it, the the, um, the background that this is coming from in the in the culture, um, I it, whatever it's a kind of whatever works culture and. The other thing I wanted to ask you in relation to that was, who's drawn to this? Why is it growing so fast? And why out? Why outside of um, Mexico and um, I guess the, l- l- more Latin America? I don't know how popular Santa Muerte is south of Mexico. Don't know. Yeah, it's spreading south as well. Yeah, I mean it's down. You get you can get books printed in like Peru and stuff like that. The thing is, in South America and Latin America as a whole, there's a totally different relationship with. Um, uh, magic, you know, magical religious practices. So there's actually a, a, a there's a, a way bigger market down there that integrates with the popular market than there is in the United States. It's not as it's not as fringe. It's not as kind of you know out there. Um, 
And it's interesting what you said about the Smurf stickers too, because that <laughs> shows up in, in, in why Santa Marta is spreading actually, because in Mexico, you go to um, a Santa Muerte temple or a Santa Muerte chapel, and you know there'll be like posters on the wall that look like they should be on an Iron Maiden album or something, and they may have been pulled from a heavy metal album or you know a T-shirt, and they're just reinterpreted as an an icon of Santa Muerte, and there's traditionalists that get really frustrated with that. Um, the people who practice it through um, curanderismo and uh, some of the more traditional forms, they get frustrated with that kind of like pop marketing, but it's become huge in the popular devotional tradition. And that spread into the United States very quickly um, through digital. I mean, it's, it's a lot of it is through digital. Folks see it on the news, they get interested in it. And the weird thing about Santa Muerte is, which really fascinates me, is that a lot of people will have a weird dream or they'll have a weird experience and then they'll see a news story that has Santa Muerte and they'll be like, I know who that is. And then they'll go and investigate it and that'll be their, their lead into the, mm. their devotion. And so that's happening in the United States where these people are having, or they say that they've had experiences since they've been a child where they didn't know where to put it. And as soon as they saw Santa Muerte, they knew that was it. So, you know, mm. kind of weird Oh, I found the book. It's called God's Middle Finger Into the Lawless Heart of the Sierra Madre by Richard Grant. That's the finger. That's the. Uh, yeah, God's Middle Finger. <laughs> it's, it's a very well written book. I mean, it's one of those ones that's just a joy to read. Anyway, um, oh, there. We, you, you're an official guest of Radio Mysterioso now because you can hear the siren. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's LA. <laughs> that's the sound of LA. Well, I used to be on the corner of um, Beverly and Vermont, and there was it was a major thoroughfare north and south, east and west for um, fire engines and ambulances. So they would constantly oh, be going great. by. <laughs> so it became a joke on the show that if whenever you heard an ambulance or a fire engine, you knew that you really were hearing the real, the real Radio Mysterioso <laughs> and not a fake one. Or a <laughs> at one time, I actually ran to the window with the microphone and stuck it out the window just so everybody would know that I was sitting in the studio. <laughs> this is live. Yeah. yeah. Why? Why did you even get interested in in Santa Muerte? Why so deeply into this one story? Uh, so it was like 2005, and there was a there was a military report on Santa Muerte, and at the time I was working um, doing a weird market research job where I was basically hired to research trends. And to do to do market you know to do standard market research stuff, but a large portion of my job was researching trends, so watching news stories. Yeah. And this news, the news started reporting on um, the spread of what happened. You know, Donakeda in two thousand one, and then you've got by two thousand five, it had started to kind of people were having parades in the streets, and it was just huge. So the media started to get interested in it. So I saw these stories coming out, and I was absolutely fascinated by it. Right. Um, you know, I have a background in folk studies and um, studying uh, kind of ritual belief patterns and stuff like that. So this was amazing. And it was, you know, it was in Mexico and it was coming up and there was some mention of it being in the United States as well. And um, Catherine Ironwood, um, I may be mispronouncing her name totally, but um, Lucky Mojo had a website at the time that had some information on it. So I'd seen that. And I gathered everything I could, and it was just really fascinating. And I thought, 
there is no possible way that I will ever be involved in researching this um, <laughs> just because of what it is and the cultural differences and everything. I'm like, that's not going to happen. So just fast forward to 2012 and Andrew's book comes out and um, I immediately jumped on email and contacted him, got a review copy and did an interview with him for um, New York University's online journal of uh, religion and media studies. And it was about the mediated perception of Santa Muerte and how it was spreading. And that interview led us to do a panel discussion at uh, Morbid Anatomy, which at the time was library and not museum. Um, and then we, uh, we did that and got to talking and set up the website and just went with it. So um, I just, I, researching Santa Muerte was able to put so many different things together. And that's actually where, I'm excited about kind of the developments in ufology because you can, these, these kind of strange cultural phenomena and, you know, and then that have physical effects and, you know, they, they became these hubs for all these different things, you know, and you can apply different methods to them. You can look at them different ways and you can understand different areas of culture by looking at these little, um, you know, microcosms. So especially when it's a really potent microcosm and you get a lot of the kind of behaviors that you would see more uh, toned down in regular culture, they're really heightened in these microcosms. So, Okay, you've provided us with a wonderful segue into the UFO stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I told you beforehand that I had not gotten enough sleep and that you would have to drive for part of the show, I think, because I'd have to take, I could yeah, take a nap while you drive. Anyway, <laughs> figuratively. <laughs> I hope not literally. Uh, yeah, right. Well, I told you if you snore, I you know I'll, I'll jump in and okay, and then just uh, just talk a lot louder over me. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> well, th see, this is interesting. I was just uh, I haven't posted it yet. We we're ta I was talking to uh, Tim Benal about um, the UFO uh, culture, subcultures of it, uh, what happens in them, how people's beliefs get um, tangled up with. Uh, what they want to believe, what they hear, the groups they hang out with, and how it's kind of hard to step back from that. And, and you know, if you love it dearly like I do, it's hard not to criticize it, um, but also step back from it and say, you know, where are people getting their, their narratives from? Where are they getting their beliefs right. from? And how does it drive uh, the, the, the study of it? And, you know, how has the... Um, all the blow up recently uh, affected it, and you know we went into that a bit. But my um, my main contention was is that the main the main thing is I think is the availability of, uh, and this is a very simplistic level, but we'll um, dig some more uh, that the availability of being able to have anything you believe shored up by somebody is uh, it allows these things to grow and change and. Um, hopefully not harm anybody's lives, but it, yeah, people get very, what's the word? They get, they get very, uh, territorial about, um, things that are, are, they don't, they don't realize that they're, you know, an example of a belief system. At least that, that's my point of view of it. Um, yeah. And it, you know, and that's, I think that ties into, uh, one of the reasons why George Hansen is so, um, interested in, uh, Weber's concept of charisma, um, you know, because not only do individuals that tell the narrative have charisma, but in something like ufology, like the UFO phenomena itself has charisma <laughs> that 
draws people in and, and changes, you know, um, and then it bleeds into all these other areas and it's so tied to self-identity. It's such an intimate experience, you know, and it's, it's amazing how, yeah, how that affects people <laughs> in terms of, of communicating that or looking at it or, you know, the way, the way that it's, there's this phenomenon that people have been questioning for, for so long. And, you know, again, one of the things that Hanson's really interested in is just what happens then when people try to look at it, <laughs> you know, it just, it becomes this really strange, what he calls paradrama, you know? What does he mean by that? Is that, that, um, you, you are reflecting what you want to it and it reflects back and, and is recur- yeah. recursive in that way. Is that, is that how he means? In some ways, and then also just the fact that for some reason, when people get involved, and you know, because of you know, he identifies its anti-structural nature and its its liminality, but right. when people approach it, they start to fight. It starts it starts to break down stuff. You know, it was one of the things that uh, Jeff brought up. Yes, in terms of uh, you know, calling UFOs to you and calling the phenomena to you. You know, if the phenomena itself is is kind of it's an initiatory phenomena. It. it changes your your structure you know what and however you deal with it and that's one of the things i'm really interested with diana pasalka's work is she's looking at it from a religious studies and a media studies perspective and her work on media studies is really fascinating because she's looking at you know the neurological effects of being exposed to media narratives and especially in the digital environment Mm -hmm. and then what happens when you've got something that's already a radioactive narrative and then you put that in the digital environment, and that's with the DeLong thing. You know, I mean, it's like you've got this this topic that is so explosive, and then something like DeLong pushing all the media buttons and, and bringing this thing together, you know, but not DeLong, I'm just, we'll use him as a label for that, yeah, but, yeah. you know, the people, the people involved in that process. So um, that all coming together, and then it drops on something like the New York Times, and it's huge, it's like an information bomb. You know, and then that that spreads out, and it's really strange to see it because it hit, and it was like everybody was just like, uh, like nobody knew what to do with it, and we still don't. No, you not know? at all. And it's and it's just this thing, and it's rippling through, and now everybody's looking to the future, like, well, what, what's next? You know, because yeah. the the especially with the elements that they pulled out, like those elements drift into all sorts of weird. You know, especially for anybody who's familiar with the the territory. You know, yeah. So. Yeah, what I said, I think, um, I don't know about right away, and I, I think I discussed this with you, was that um, if you took the most perfect version of the myth with all, right. the, you know, all the all the little, you know, all the little boxes to check off, they got all those boxes checked off, or most of them. Right. Because um, yeah. it's, it's what's been getting fed to us. It, it's been running around in the culture for the last 20, 30 years, I think, since since before Bill Moore in 1989. But certainly after that, um, through X-Files and all the movies and TV shows up to now, what they're talking about fits that narrative to a T. It's um, right. hooking right into the mythology. It's sort of frightening, but it's also very interesting to me. The other thing I thought of very strangely when you said about Diana's work and how technology and the medium that feeds it to you feeds whatever the message to you is part of that message and how it affects you subconsciously i was thinking in the middle ages in the west the only media really people had who couldn't read were stained glass windows in churches which were really amazing to them it's like there's something that's beautiful and colorful and glowing and that's how we get our messages now 
We get them through through right. we get them through these magic windows of of, of our computer screens. So well, it's got to be you know having the same sort of the same effect. I mean, there's there's got to be uh, studies somewhere about when some light show as opposed to a book or somebody telling you something. How does that affect you differently? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of studies, and uh, even as basic as basic as flicker effect in light. Right. In terms of what flicker effect does in, uh, to you know, induce different brain states. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's really interesting. You, you brought up the, the stained glass windows because, you know, not only did they have those in that, but the way the cathedral was built was the cathedral was built on mathematical structures that also told the story. So they were immersed in that experience. Like every aspect of the cathedral is built oh, yeah. to embody. They were like a you book. Know that. And, right. They and were we like have books. that now. Ahead, with the with the internet, well, with the digital with digital media, we have that because people are crafting. You know, uh, well, even when it's not crafted, really, I mean, just by the basic architecture of the way that we get our media, we're getting a sculpted experience like that, and it's not it's not necessarily directed, which is kind of strange. You know, <laughs> we're we're uh, you know, and that was one of the in uh, the the preface or uh, prologue that Diana's posted to American Cosmic. She talks about the uh, the internet as a extended cognition, you know, and it's, mm. and that was one of the things that struck me with the um, bio cybernetic uh, or cyber biological uh, UFO book um, was the 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 way that the internet itself was an example of cybernetics. It's an ex, you know it's an extension of us and how our and. Uh, a lot of her work deals with the extension of technology as an extension of our body. Yeah, maybe you um, should explain to people you know, about what, what cybernetics is and and the book um, about you know what 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 the definition of cybernetics is. You know how how, how uh, things are controlled and uh, communicate with each other and you know, etc. And then we we can talk a yeah, little bit cyber- about the cyber biological book, which I I think is a landmark book. And you were actually criticizing it the other day, and I wanted to talk to you about that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, um, <laughs> not heavily, <laughs> light, lightly criticizing. <laughs> the um, and it's good to have a chance to to round that out, not typing. So that's that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, the cybernetics is basically just the study of uh, communication, right? So, but it's communication that leads to action. So, right. how are commands given that control a situ- that control a mechanism that then acts? And so that that's the most basic definition, and that goes into how does the, you know, how do we communicate with machines? Um, I think one of the 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 cyber biological uh, Stillings writes about that in terms of the communications that we get from um, our body interacting with the environment, and then how that affects the psyche was the way he put it. Right. Um, you know, so it's this idea of communication between two things leading to a result, but specifically leading to a result. Yeah. So, um, and, and that really was my, uh, I think what I would, I would totally agree with you in the, in the sense that it was the book's a landmark book. I mean, it, it covers it uh, in a multi, you know, multidisciplinary way that brings in all these different, uh, angles on it. You've got the people that are writing on it are still doing research for the most part, you know, which is always good. <laughs> it shows you that they were serious when the book comes out in 1989 and, you know, they're still involved in the field. And I think my only contention really with it was just, 
um, was its was its value to me now in the same sense was that it showed me that cybernetics as just itself, just as, you know, using the basics of cybernetics without, without bringing it into psychology or any of that wasn't really being looked at. And yet that in terms of UFOs was where Jacques Vallée got his, um, control system ideas was from information theory. And so instead of bringing the, the idea of cyber biological, into this, you know, uh, bringing Jung in and bringing these psychological elements and like psychology elements that were specific to modalities of psychology. Um, I was thinking, what if we just took cybernetics and pull back and start looking at what cybernetics is saying and then see how that, those models can be, and methodologies can be used to look at the phenomena, which I don't know. It was a thought that I had, you know, so I'm now kind of going back and reading, uh, machine learning papers and that, and seeing what problems they're looking at in terms of information theory, and then how do those problems, what, what kind of analogous situations can we see with the phenomenon, how it relates, and then how can we use those kind of cross comparisons to get a better idea for what's going on with the phenomenon? Because um, it's it's such a complex thing, and I think that you know, it, if we, one of the things that again bringing up Hansen is that uh, he's really focused on methodology and proper methodology because of the tricky nature of the phenomenon, the fact that it has this, you know, you were talking about the recursive quality where you deal with it and it's dealing with you, and th- weird things start to happen that have nothing to do with what you're looking at. So, how do you kind of control for that? And I think that good methodology, really focused methodology, that's that's coming out of more mundane things. You know, that was one of the things that really blew me away about uh, Diana's work was that she's taking strict scholarly methods. You know, Kripal does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Strict scholarly methods, applying them to these areas, and the results are crazy. They're, they're amazing. And it, it, it not only then brings forward the standard, um, you know, uh, disciplines that are being applied to it, but it then also brings forward our understanding of uh, the phenomena. I mean, like, Supernatural uh, was an incredible relook at Whitley Strieber's narrative, which, you know, none of that, none of what Kripal kind of aligned in that book was available prior to that book. And then he aligns it in that book using these methods, and suddenly the understanding of it moves forward, you know, and that's, that's kind of the marker is like, is our understanding moving forward? And we've got to find methods that will allow us to do that. And I'm excited because it seems like that's starting to reach out to the public. I'm sure that people were doing this. You know, um, I can't be the first one to be like, apply methodology. You know, I just don't think it was part of the public conversation. But now that uh, it's, you know, I don't know, digital, I guess, really digital communication kind of breaking down these barriers. I think there's a really cool opportunity right now to, you know, sort of... To move do, forward with yeah, it. one to have um, people that are not uh, that were probably afraid to speak about it before publicly uh, be a little right, bit more yeah. open, and two democratize it so people like uh, me and I guess uh, well you're, you're you've got a little bit more of a track record, but um, people like me and people who listen to this show and and uh, others um, can engage in that conversation in a way that they were they couldn't before because it's so open right yeah and it's and it's so necessary too because you think about like the rocket program right 
Jack Parsons was a civilian, you know, and he's he's building, you know, the solid state rocket fuel. Right. And that happened. He was a hobbyist. And that was the a large portion of the practical material end of the U, the U.S. space program at the very beginning, developing the rockets was they were hobbyists. And you see that whenever that happens, you know, that's what's exciting about um, the UFO, when the UFO flaps were hitting, you know, like in the 50s and the 60s and that you think of like Keel and like all these like these classic people. It was this weird mix of high, low in between, like not even on the map, all coming together and bringing, you know, forward stuff. And for some reason that like it's still there. But I think like the digital communication has kind of shocked and scattered everybody. But it seems like stuff's starting to come back together in a fruitful way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it would seem that the fallout of this is, and like I just said, is that uh, it is safe for what for academics and quote unquote respectable people to talk about this in a respectable way. The funny thing I noticed and what I, I noticed this with the DeLong people too, is they do not say aliens. They do not say extraterrestrials. Right. They just say something else, which is, I think that's a great way to go about it, but I'm, I, I don't think they're doing it because they don't want the narrative to go in that direction they're more doing well maybe it is and they're doing it because they don't want to be associated with that part of the, uh, the what that part of the narrative that part of the uh show that part of the uh culture that um talks about it in that way even though it's it's very strange they're just about supposedly one of the next things they're going to talk about is people's dna being changed uh during uh supposed abduction experiences Right. So I wonder what will happen when they push that button. <laughs> you know, when that button gets right. pushed, what blows up then? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Where does the yeah? How do we how do we manage that sea of information? Yeah, that's and that's a weird thing too, is because all these links happen because you you get that information into the architecture of digital communication, and suddenly, you know, very strange patterns emerge. And you know, I think the alien thing. I think the other reason that they're doing that too is probably. When you're when they're dealing with, I mean, that's one of the things that was so shocking about the New York Times thing was it was it was no longer a social myth, right? We like we could no longer kind of crutch ourselves on psychology and like, oh, maybe it's a really weird consciousness thing. They're talking about technology, you know. They're talking about tech. <laughs> they're talking about filming a physical technological object that they you know are then looking at and analyzing. So that changes it a little bit. And I think at that point it, it becomes like I, that alone is so, um, you know, anomalous that to put aliens on top of that or anything else, you know, it, it doesn't help finding out what that is. And it's also the questions too, like, you know, they're, they're trying to build, um, spaceships, you know, or some sort of advanced forms of travel and stuff. So the question of aliens or not aliens, isn't really applicable to what they're looking at. What they're looking at is we got this weird thing. Can we build it? You know? Yeah. At least that's what they're telling us. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't <laughs> know I, until, you know, as, as, uh, as, uh, go rightly has said, um, free the, free the, uh, free the alloys until we, uh, <laughs> hashtag free the alloys until we get yeah, to see that. something like that publicly and it truly is anomalous we really don't know what they're doing what the message is and what the you know uh, 
what right. narr- what what narrative they're trying to um, what start control steer whatever you want to call it because uh, I think that's a very heavy part of it when you when you have the the power of changing people's perceptions if you're watching these people watching what's going on it's very interesting to see what you know how the perceptions are being uh, managed yeah and it's interesting too because you've got like the the business aspect of it. Right. So not right. only are perceptions being managed for whatever the you know the mystery is, like there's perceptions being managed to make a good product that can be sold. Yeah. So that's a, yeah, a big part of it. A, co- a complex, you know, a complex stew there of of influences and that. And no, I mean, yeah, it's just it's weird. <laughs> it's just so weird, but that's why it's so fascinating, and that's that's why I'm I'm excited and excited to kind of uh, you know, play with it a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, toss it into the thought machine. Yeah, I think I, I I sent you some of these questions, at least most of the ones I had, and uh, we're we're kind of wandering all over them, which is great, which is fine. That's how that's how this uh, show works. Um, and we have we have just been talking about this for a little bit, but is you know, what, do you have any idea of what the how the narrative will change, or how it has? Changed? How do you think the narrative has changed since? this happened in December and the fallout from it and what effect did you, do you think that has had and do you think it is carrying us towards an answer or more confusion or uh, less understanding or more? What would you, what's your reaction to what's going on? I, people have asked me a hundred times. I don't exactly know what to say. Yeah. And I'm, I'm in the same, you know, my reaction was like, Oh wow. (laughs) And then, jump and grab a bunch of books and uh, go to the university library and grab a bunch of random things that seem to have nothing to do with UFOs and then go back and start researching. Um, but uh, I think that one of the... That'll be my next question. Just, uh, the, um, if you, it's just that it's the physicality of it. You know, it was, re- it was, it was, uh, that's always a sticking point. And a lot of work has been done to develop different theories that edge away from a physical reality to it. And now I think that question's right back at the front. Um, what we can do with that, I don't know. Like you said, until we see a piece of metal or touch it or see, you know, see something physical. Um, personally, like I, you know, I don't know. Um, but I think it changes the narrative in that way. And the other thing I think it does too is that. Um, it's it's brought it's kind of centralized the the question uh amongst a, a few people who are now being like hammered you know um which i guess kind of is a is a frequent thing where you know somebody comes forward with a story people start investigating it looking at it but i think that this you know the folks involved in everything uh it just kind of stretches out into all these weird because you've got how put off who did the sri remote viewing work you know um you got Tom DeLonge from Blink-182, you know, you've got folks from the government, you got all these different people, specifically just in that New York Times story, um, and then all the commentators and, and people commenting on it, and then the stories that are developing out of that. It's a weird, it's a weird deal, you know? Um, and I think that it's centralized and, uh, you know, re-brought up this physicality question. And then what was going to come out of that, I don't know. I mean, because it, it's... It really depends. I don't know how much of a controlled structure they have on their information release that they're going to be doing. Who knows if other people are going to come forward with stuff. 
um, we've got like we're only talking about this one small section of the world and there's right how many other governments you know i mean other groups who knows you know so mm-hmm. well it's right. gonna go putting going it, forward, you know maybe you know? it's planting or putting out a flag or you know trying to see what the reaction will be i don't know you said something fascinating right when i asked that confusing question what books did you <laughs> ru- what books did you run out and get when this happened well, I got I got Heaven Can Wait right by Diana Pasalka for the pur- the purgatory technology and the the imaginal. Right. Um, I grabbed uh, Kripal's authors of the impossible um, to uh, kind of revisit his theories of narrative and how the narratives develop around this, and also to revisit the probably one of the best profiles of Jacques Vallée um, to kind of get a you know, just a quick recap on him um, and what, what his, his theories are. Um, what else? I got a big stack. I don't know. I got one on um, apophatic traditions and uh, Christian uh, contemplative stuff. Uh, Dionysius, the Aeropagiate, which is, um, he was a uh, early Christian that mixed uh, Neoplatonism with Christianity in a really interesting way. He developed the angelic hierarchy that kind of drifted through uh, Catholic and Orthodox traditions. And um, he also was a non-dualist thinker. So it was kind of weird. He was doing an angelic hierarchy and then also this non-dual thing. So for me, that helped me kind of conceptualize the consciousness aspects of the phenomenon and then also the physical aspects. Cause that's what he was bridging was, you know, this angelic hierarchy, you've got these, different orders of uh, intelligent powers that interact with the world that exist in between the individual and the divine. Um, so that was, that was one of my exciting uh, delves into that. Uh, I don't even know. It's not by me. I'm actually outside right now for good perception. So I don't have the, oh, okay. it was a massive stack. Yeah. I got, uh, I got the secret machines, Lavenda DeLong thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, to check that out to see what what they were pulling in um i'm familiar a little bit with lavenda's work so um you know it was interesting to see where he took that and uh i just sat with a pen and paper and notebook and like pull quoted and like <laughs> drew weird pictures you know did some weird ambient music to to get my thoughts together mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah it was a, uh- an intense study period yeah, what it, it it kind of forces you. It sounded like it forced you back to you know, kind of, um, as you'd mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, what is what is more important? Studying the physicality of this radar reports, these alloys, um, ground traces, whatever you want to call it, or you know, is it more? Is it still more important as as I used to think, and I think I still think is to just is to uh, study how it affects people and how people are changed by it, and how the witness um, is uh, how they're uh, how they how, how they're affected physically, mentally, spiritually, all that. Um, do, you know, do, does it pull it, does it pull it back in a physicality direction, and is that bad? Yeah, I don't. You know, I think it's. I think what it does is it, it just kind of rebalances it to both. You know, because I don't think you can really. And and I think with the physicality question. Yeah, I personally am not going to be back engineering a UFO, and I don't know enough physics or anything to really, you know what I mean? So I can't, I, I can't approach it in that way. I can be fascinated by it. I can go back to physics, kind of dig in there a little bit and see what, what the, what's being looked at with that. 
Um, and that, that's very interesting. Uh, and there's the different ways they're interesting with the methods that they're using, you know, and that like video analysis and that kind of thing, which is, it's really interesting the amount of information you can get off of inf- uh, a video analysis. But, um, yeah, it just, it, it, and then it brought, I guess it, it, it just combined these things for me. So, you know, the, and that was why I grabbed, um, the, the one on the Christian contemplative, because this idea of the, the one and the many, you know, or the, um, just the way that the the whole and the parts interact, I think is very, it's, it's a, a key question in, in Western and Eastern philosophy and, or any philosophy really, but the, that interaction of the parts and the whole plays a huge part in this, um, even at the narrative level or the, the level that it's affecting people, you know, so I wanted to look more into that. But yeah, I think that I always lean towards the, the uh, you know, kind of the, sociological anthropology anthropological uh, psychological psychospiritual kind of stuff mm-hmm. um so this has really just kind of kicked me into looking back at it there was actually an incident where uh <laughs> this guy that i knew uh when i was in college he contacted me on facebook a couple years ago and he was like uh what's your thoughts on ufos <laughs> and uh, you know and I, so i went into this like uh kind of pedantic valet, you know, kind of explanation or whatever that what I thought I understood of valet at the time. And it, it wasn't necessarily the case now in a deeper look, but so I went on this thing about consciousness and psychology and narratives and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, Oh, okay. Cause yeah, I was, I was out the other night with my friend in my backyard and I totally saw one of those triangle ships just kind of appear in the sky. And he went through this description of it and I was like, Oh, Okay. And this isn't, you know, this wasn't a kid that, or when I knew him, he was a kid, but now he's obviously older, but it wasn't somebody who would have just made that up and just sent that to me. So I was kind of like, oh, okay, well, that's weird. You know, so I told him to give a MUFON report or something. And then I think he actually got written up in Mysterious Universe. And I told him, I was like, don't worry about it. They don't read those things anyway, because he was all worried he was going to be visited by, you know, people or something if he reported it. But he reported it, and then he gets written into a mysterious universe thing. <laughs> um, so I was laughing. You know, I was looking, so everything I said was wrong, basically. You know, like, don't worry, nobody's going to pay attention. Oh, your source didn't pay, you know, in an article. Like, it's just consciousness. Oh, you actually physically saw something? Okay, I don't have any idea. <laughs> you know, and so that's kind of where I'm back at, you know, is where the, the New York times thing dropped. Cause I'd been looking at it and just being like, Oh, this is ridiculous, you know, and laughing and being like, Oh, what, what kind of media game will this be that we can look at and whatever. And then it hit and I was like, Oh, this is actually really interesting. <laughs> it was like this, it was like being just immediately stopped my, my snarky attitude. And I was like, well, whatever it is, you know, it's interesting. It's sparking a lot of interesting thoughts. So, yeah, I, to me, it's kind of a left field moment. I did, I did not expect anything like this to happen. And um, while I don't think it's uh, uh, as uh, uh, revelatory or what's the word as disclosure as many people are saying it is, uh, the fallout of it, you know, we see <laughs> the bomb explodes, and we're we're still trying to pick up all the pieces and figure out <laughs> what got blown out of that explosion. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and I think that's the, that's the interesting thing. Again, it's this radioactive nature of the narrative <laughs> is that, you know, whether we want to, I don't know that you, you'd asked one of the questions I think you sent over was, is this just a recursive question that we're going to just be, you know, no matter what, it's just going to keep bouncing back at us and we're going to have to keep plowing through it. 
and that's one of the things that uh, Kripal's work on Streber made me relook at was um, some of the kind of thought, like where the evolutionary narrative in all this fits. You know, there's the whole contactee thing of like, mm-hmm. we're on the bridge of a new dawn and, and all that kind of stuff that right. has been really prevalent for a long time, you've got messianic movements forever, but they always actually kind of deal with, you know, and that's one of the things too, is my background is in um, the magic traditions, you know, the scholarships, the like esoteric, studying esoteric traditions. So, you know, when Valet's talking about Paracelsus making a lot of sense in terms of the phenomena, yeah, I'm seeing that as well, where you've got like, whenever you have these messianic movements, if you actually go back and look at what the, the charismatic leaders were saying or how they were getting their information. There's a lot of times some kind of entity contact there, you know, and then you see that kind of carried forward now into the UFO narrative. And it's very strange because the core message of, you know, uh, you know, and that's where the, the Marian apparition messages meet with the contactee messages in strange ways, you know, like with some changes in terms of what organization is focused on, but um, just those parallels in that it's really fascinating. And, uh, so I think that there's, there are developments in it because you can kind of trace that message as it's gone forward and it has physical changing effects on the culture. So I think it's leading to something. I don't know what though. Yeah. You know? definitely it, changing effects really on weird. the, yeah, on the, on the witness yeah. or the experience, uh, the person who's experiencing it too. And that, that has, uh, that has a ripple effect. Um, uh, one of my questions I, I know, you know, are you there? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was getting more instructions. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they sound like they're coming from me. I think. Um, I'm, 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 I'm involved in an issue of recursive unsolvability with you right now. Um, <laughs> so your 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 doppelganger sending me down. Yeah. I. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask about was uh, in in um, Diana's book in Heaven Can Wait. Um, the Purgatory book. Uh, she had yeah. a. She you quoted something from that book. I haven't gotten the book yet. I'm going to order it. Um, in another stack of add it to the stack of books that I have to read, um, <laughs> including about five of the ones you'd mentioned, like um, Supernatural, uh, Authors of the yeah. Impossible. Um, yeah. What else do I have sitting on the? I've I've got like you know eight or even more just sitting on the stack there, to kind of get through, but. Um, what you quoted out of her book was uh, what's going on in the interaction between somebody that experiences something like a, like a uh, like a vision and the local environment. Um, right. That person has been primed in a lot of ways, at least the ones that have the the mystical experiences, by some sort of practice or at least a heavy belief uh, or some kind of preparation. And th- then they come back and give you this this experience that to them was profoundly real, um, right. but it's 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 not something where you. This, I'm sounding like I'm talking about UFO experience. You could exactly. not be you exactly. could not be standing there when they're having this experience and have the experience that they had. You may have right. a completely different one. You may see some other kind of uh, uh, entity, being um, BVM, whatever you want to call it, uh, a saint. Um, so you can't really, you know, you can talk about it, but you can't really, as I said in my question here, you can't quantify it or put it in a database or anything like that. So, you know, how would you go about, you know, from your from your point of view, how could you go about 
um, describing, quantifying, making useful somebody's very uh, personal um, experience of something strange, of something out of the ordinary, of something that really changed their their worldview or their personality or whatever their lives. You know, how do you how do well, we you know how, what what <laughs> what do we do with that kind of stuff? What do we do with the witness? What do we do with what they say? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Bury them, right? Like, get rid of them. You yeah, exactly. Well, you can do what people have normally been doing. It's like, what color is it? How far did it go? Um, how long was it yeah. there? And what did the beings look like? And, you know, how big was the ship? What did it look like it was made out of? What colors was it? What time of day? That's the, at this point, that's, to me, I think that's kind of useless because we've got all that now. Right. Yeah. And it, um, and that was one of the things that like really hit me with Diana's work with using the religious studies methodology is that one of the things she's looking at is you have in that specific thing that I quoted, you had the technology of a cave that had this whole ritual that was involved with it where the person was essentially being buried alive and they would fast i think for 15 days beforehand and intense prayers some people didn't even make it through that yeah and then once you went through that you were warned when you're going in the cave like some people don't come out and it was you know um she posits in there in the book that maybe it, it could have been like the um, the oracle caves in greece where there's some kind of gas in the cave that causes oh, right, right. Or yeah. Something. yeah the delphic you know, so oracle it may have yeah. been a, yeah and it may have been an actually unsafe environment that they were going into but and then they went into this cave uh, and were locked in, you know, as if you know they were being entombed and they were given their last rites in some descriptions of this practice. So, um, you know, you're essentially being buried alive and you were about to face purgatory. So you were about to be purged by demons. <laughs> you were about to go to hell and be purged, or you know, purgatory, which is you know, on your way to hell. So, sitting in that in-between realm in limbo. And you were going to be purged by demons, and it was going to be a nightmare. And um, if you survived, then you would come out and you would have, you know, paid some part of your penance for for afterlife. But, the, you know, the people would come out with these visionary experiences. And one of the things she was drawing on is this concept of the imaginal, mm-hmm. which was the other thing that I was I was looking at with the cyberbiological is yeah. uh, the title includes imaginal, but and the way you, that they use imaginal is much more psychological. Imaginal? Well, and that's the interesting thing is there's models for that. Um, Henry Corbin did uh, an extensive review of Islamic uh, visionary narratives and the techniques that they used to quantify and to codify the visionary experience. And if you go back to the Catholic tradition, which is what Diana's work called me back to, is to look at how are these experiences quantified and codified in order to create a 2,000-year institution. Um, one of the things that's interesting, my friend um, Shannon Taggart, she has a book coming out um, called Seance, and it's mm-hmm. about um, spiritualist rituals. Right. So how did the, the experience of mediumship, how is that quantified and quote, codified through media in order to create this experience? And so that the question of how do we quantify it actually becomes a, a way of looking at it. You know, is that, that question of how do we quantify it? we start to look at the phenomena in a way that helps us identify those aspects that we can then quantify. And then we go back and look for models where people are taking experiential realms and kind of codifying those. Yeah. And that was, again, when I was looking at um, the Christian contemplative angelic hierarchy, because there's, again, a quantification of a, a spiritual experience 
that is coming from someone who believes that everything is within God. Mm-hmm. So he's making these these differentiations while at the same time having this holistic experience. And I think that that's an interesting thought experiment, I guess, to, to kind of approach the phenomena with. What that comes out with, I don't know. Yeah. You know, folkloristics has some um, methodologies for taking experiential narratives and codifying them, but it's real similar to what you're saying, where it's, did you see a red light? Did you see an orange light? Was it green? Was it pretty? You know what I mean? These very specific things. Was it big? Was it small? What shape was it? You know, so. The first thing um, I think of when you say that is the Charles Fort quote of, um, we pick up an existence by its frogs. Right. (laughs) 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 You can't, you can't be putting, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, well, well, what, what are we looking at? You know, because that, and I think that was again, the question of physicality because, so there's, you know, these aerial objects that are that look like technology, mm-hmm. you know, and they're on video as technology and they're on radio as a, a technological thing, maybe. Um, there's a lot of reports of technological things, but there's also the, the plasma stuff, you know, like project identification, where yeah. um, you got a professor that's being chased around by what looks like glowing plasma balls, you know? So there's different... Um, there's different phenomena that are all kind of being looped into this that all, you know, and it would be easy to say like, well, they're unrelated and they're just different phenomena that we're experiencing. But that's kind of the weird thing about right now is that it's functionally all coming together in a really interesting way. You've got Strieber talking about um, the mediumship stuff that he's doing right now being tied to his contact experience. And um, that's not, averse to a lot of the scholarly research into mediumship and contact experience. You've got someone like John Climo who um, did a big, uh, he did a a large treaty on um, channeling and he covers the whole gamut from contactees to people who are, you know, channeling the dead to people who are channeling God forms. And stuff like that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. And And then you have something like that, like, where you've got a guy in upstate New York who's, um, you know, eating only vegetarian and has this weird experience where he starts typing out this huge, but I don't think it's huge. Have you, you've seen it, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's like a, a, what, 800, 900. It's, it's a fat book. Yeah, it's mad and so intricate, and it's got this intricate like metaphysics all worked out within it, you know? Mm-hmm. It's completely odd, and, and, it's, and it's actually spurred up to this day, you know, inner traditions is still putting out books that are related to reinterpreting the world through, uh, you know, Oishpe, yeah. which is amazing to me that, that that book had such saying power, you know? Yeah. And it's, uh, <laughs> I've never had the patience. I've got a copy of it. I just got it to use bookstore. It's like, oh, what? Good. Oishpe. But I start reading it. I start reading it, and I get this. I get this feeling that um, my friend Mario used to get. He said, "You're you're supposedly listening to the center of the universe, and people are going to sleep." Right. That's what a lot of channeled stuff tends tends to be. You know, there's right. a lot. There's a lot oh, of yeah. there's a lot of talking around a concept somehow. I don't know why spirits yeah. are so um, so uh, verbose. <laughs> yeah, they're purple, purple prose. Yeah, that right. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, yeah, but the, you know, but the you know, there is a core of uh, message there. Th- not that I know what it is because I've never read the damn thing. But um, right. 
There, there's a few it's different. There's a few different. Uh, yeah, the, the the Seth stuff is uh, has has a lot of staying power too. And there's people now that say they're still channeling the the, the Seth entity. Yeah, and that, you know, and that the the entities come back. You know, and the thing that really interested me too is that um, with looking deeper uh, into this stuff was just getting into um, the experiencer experiences that I really hadn't looked at before because there's, you know only so much time in the day so it's you get the people that are really out there and, and publicizing their stuff but there's a whole kind of private tradition and this is actually yeah. i think a lot of what i'm looking at now with the ufo stuff are things that i developed through looking at santa muerte which was don't go to the experts don't go to the person who's um you know out in front saying that they're an expert but find the grandma who's worshiping santa muerte and hear her story you know, go up to the dude that, you know, um, is just a guy that you met and ask him, like, what's his experience with it? You know, and you'll always get way better, way more interesting, way more grounded um, examples of what's happening. Yeah. You know, and so that that coming out with this, you know, with the channel material, too, I think that that's one of the things, um, you know, Shannon kind of brought to me with the mediumship and also seeing what the Windbridge folks are doing. Um there's a whole different kind of grounded uh, tradition to it that isn't quite as flighty or as um, is specious, you know. Just yeah, I, I know what you mean. Generally, yeah, it's like the say yeah. don't, no don't say and say don't know thing. Um, yeah. Generally, the people that are quieter about it and going about their business have a little better, a um, little more coherent uh, message to impart because they've they they want to make it uh, understandable to themselves so they right, they yeah. they take it over and they 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 make sense um what you're also describing here sounds like a a nice um uh, methodology for uh talking to ufo witnesses um get right up. yeah and that's you know and that kind of thing comes up too is that just just this thing you know in um working at the university like people in the office that i work with hearing their stories which didn't come out until the New York Times thing. And they're not exciting stories, but they're stories about local stuff that's happened. Like, I guess there was a, in Athens, Georgia, there was some kind of abduction moment in the 90s where a guy was getting scoops taken out of his arm. And he was a local guy. He supposedly got written up in the local kind of culture magazine. I couldn't find it. Their archives don't go far enough back. And I didn't make an effort, really, to, to look into it. But, um stuff like that, you know, which I hadn't, wouldn't have known otherwise, you know. Um, and so, you know, just talking to people and getting that. And I think you mentioned that too, where people will just come up and talk to you and, and that's kind of a, that's enough, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's, and I think that too is the question of will the, will the question continue? I think most people who aren't professionally engaged in trying to, uh, you, you know, develop something out of this, um, everybody's in it because it's interesting and it's kind of, it, it draws, you know, like you said, it's, it's how to bring it into your own personal narrative and what does that mean? You know? So I think that, um, whether or not the question continues, it'll, it's still worthwhile, you know, looking into it and it does bring that kind of personal connectivity to it. If you, if you bring it into your life in that way, or yeah. it could bring UFOs down and it could be what Jeff said. <laughs> yeah. <know>, suddenly <laughs> ruin your life. Boss man's at your door and yeah, you're, you're in trouble, but yeah, well, the um, what seems to be more fruitful, and uh, a friend of mine said this. It's uh, 
the best way you could probably, or one of the better ways you could probably go about doing more research is to get to know somebody and talk right. to them because exactly. eventually more things yep. come out. Um, you get a different perspective on it. You do, as Jeff and uh, other people have said, but specifically Jeff, you do run the the uh, risk of going native and um, um, uh, sort of dropping into that, uh, uh, dropping into the subculture and becoming part of it. I think Diana, during our talk, our, our interview, said that she she brought up a couple that was doing, I guess, an atheist couple that was doing research into Catholicism and then converted. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that was that was an interesting uh, element to the the Santa Muerte uh, research was uh, you converted that, and also what's that? <laughs> I said yeah, you converted being, yeah, being converted and and having to deal with that, you know, having to deal with the repercussions of being converted. Who Actually, you? It, it did. No, <laughs> I'm joking. Okay, I'm joking. Yeah, the the um, but but interacting with with a devotional culture, uh, it does rub off. You mm-hmm. know, it does. Um, it does. It brings a different kind of experience to your life, and it's it's weird. I mean, I had a lot of weird experiences around the Santa Marte stuff when I was heavily doing the research. Um, Please go on. <laughs> Please um, go on. People like stories. I know I do. Yeah, I don't. It's. So, well, I was up in New York um, doing uh, Shannon Taggart, who I'd mentioned before, she does the the spiritualist photography. Mm-hmm. Um, we've yeah. been doing a series of kind of uh, um, uh, events that focused on parapsychology. We had George Hansen and um, we had Stanley uh, Krippner and mm-hmm. um, a bunch of different people come up. So I was up in New York helping with that or something. And I walked I, on the ride up there. Um, it was just a really weird ride. Um, I try, I always tried to make it in a day cause I was coming from Georgia so I could just drive straight up. I was driving overnight. The radio was just being really weird and it would like, like I was in the middle of Virginia. It's pitch black. It's, you know, in the, the wooded area or whatever. And the radio starts to skits out and skits into like Mexican music, which my station was not on. Um, I get up to, to, um, to Brooklyn and, there's a boot scuff on the wall that looks exactly like Santa Muerte. I actually took a picture of it um, as an example of what people, you know, like a Marian apparition, uh, you know, like the Jesus in a toast or something. Right? Oh, I see. You mean um, it was it was in the shape of the yeah the dark saint uh, yeah, statue? Yeah, I was it was see. a Grim yeah. Reaper. Yeah. You know, it was a Grim Reaper silhouette, but it was a boot scuff. Hmm. You know, and it was uh, it, it was, was a Megadeth like album, where, dude. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're all wrong, dude. It was Megadeth. <laughs> yeah, it was just some, it was marketing. It was. Some, yeah. it was part I'm of sorry. Go ahead. Team was. Um, and then it. I mean, it led all the way into. Uh, I had a really screwed up experience with the DMV down here that led to me being in jail overnight. What? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, and so um, that all got rectified. It was fine. And it actually turned out to be really fruitful because I ended up in jail and I wrote about this for, um, the piece I wrote for the revealer about Santa Muerte. Um, and I ended up, so I'm in jail and, uh, the guy, the, the folks that I'm in the, the cell with are, um, local mass dealers. And the one guy, they're going through their stories and the guy's talking about how he, um, and by local meth dealers, it's in a rural Georgia area. So that's how weird the situation was when, 
I get to my the punchline of this, but um, so he he's giving his his testimony about his life, and he says that he overdosed and blacked out, and then he had this vision of this grim reaper figure, the skeleton figure that came forward and told him that he was one of her soldiers and that he was a good soldier and that he would go far with her in her army. And he's describing this and not using any terms. Right. And he's just, he's describing this vision that he's had that he, after he OD'd and he's like, and that was so messed up that got me out of it. Like I wasn't going to be any part of that. And then he says he gets a rosary in the mail from some like people that he was working with saying that like they knew that he'd had this vision or whatever and that he was chosen and i was like are you talking about santa muerte and he's like how did you know that like how did you know that name that's what they call it so it was really weird to have him you know what are the what's the likelihood right that yeah well when you start research with when you yeah, start messing it, with it, stuff, it, the synchronicities start tumbling out in very strange ways that you don't expect. Yeah, absolutely, and it really. But it, the one thing is, is that no academic is in a jail cell with these people, <laughs> with devotees, with people yeah. that that experience it. And so I had a rare experience, and was you know capable because you know I'm, I I that didn't bother me. Like I wasn't bothered by being in there. So like. I was able to to uh, benefit from the situation and have this conversation and have this understanding with this guy um, that was really interesting. And there were some other things that happened afterwards that were weird, but um, that tied into that. But it was, it was a strange series of coincidences. And uh, yeah, I mean, when you start dealing with this stuff, if it actually is potent and alive, it will it will kick back, you know. Um, and you've got to be ready for that. And I think one of the things Jeff brought up is that at the end of the day, it may not be bad. It may actually be something that helps you grow, but at the time it's going to be terrifying and, uh, you know, or at least unmooring. So anything else happened that you, you recall? Cause I had, when I was working on my magazine, that was one of the weirdest times in my life and I brought it all on oh, my life and I didn't even realize my a string of weirdness so i can't even <laughs> yeah i mean like honestly like every day it's some other strange thing happens you know so i, <laughs> I don't even i go with the same word it was just so intense i encountered it in, in places that i never thought i would i'd run into uh this devotees material a, a non-weird thing that was just kind of interesting was that i was doing a lot of the um uh, uh, the graphic design for the website in terms of just making collages and that. So I was doing these Santa Muerte images yeah. that I was... Um, oh no, you're uh, doing devotionals the, without knowing it. Well, that's what happened, yeah. They got, because of the culture you were talking about before, which is just grab whatever works, um, <laughs> because we had a, a site that was specifically devoted to Santa Muerte, uh, a lot of those um, images ended up being brought into the devotional tradition in various ways. So I'd see them popping up on Facebook groups <laughs> with prayers on them, you know, so they'd have like a prayer and they'd be tagged for a local Santa Muerte group in, uh, in Mexico. And it was incredible. I loved it. I was like, that's, that's awesome. Like what a, what a great honor to make this, you know, this digital image, you know, this digital collage, uh, and have it brought into the devotional tradition. But that also brings in, kind of the ethical end of it, which was weird for me because, you know, mm -hmm, I'm looking right. at this tradition, I'm writing about it, and I'm also an artist, so I'm doing art around it, but then that art's influencing their tradition. It's a strange 
circle of influence, you know, and that's kind of goes back into what you were talking about with the, the UFO narratives, you know, where people, where do, where does the information come from, you know, and I was able to see that very directly by the fact that I posted the image and then suddenly, you know, folks in Mexico City were using it, so. Yeah, you were, you were uh, creating, uh, you were creating their own uh, stained glass for them. Right. Yeah. Without even the, being on hired. The screen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was one of the anonymous, the anonymous cathedral cultures, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can't put your name on it because then that would not no. be the proper service to uh, Santa Morte, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it, it must be anonymous. Oh, but here's the other thing that we uh, we said we'd talk about. We haven't mentioned yet. We've got half an hour. You, when I was talking to you the other day, I, I talked to David the first time ever uh, three days ago. And we just, let's do the interview on Sunday. Sure. <laughs> and one thing that surprised me is he was, uh, you told me that you um, were pissed off about Jung's model of alchemy. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Very much so. That's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. Because I actually, I think I am a little bit pissed off with his model of alchemy. And my, I told um, my wife that, and she goes, what? Does he think that it's it's base metals being turned into gold? That's all it is? And I said, I don't know. I'll ask him that on the show. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't think so. Yeah, no, I mean, that, and that's... Um, but but the thing is is that I don't think that that's separate from it, and that was one of the problems that I that I have with it. I think that I think there's a legitimate tradition there. I don't think you need to take it into the psychological domain. Um, and there's actually a long history that continues to this day of um, you know top level material scientists also looking at at alchemy and alchemical principles, um, and that. Uh, that I think what what's happened with the Jung thing is that it's not that he doesn't have interesting ideas and concepts, and it's not that he himself didn't have really powerful experiences, and there's a lot to work with there, but I think people get blinded by him, and I don't think that they look at the full tradition. Um, there's a book by um, Aaron Cheek, who um, he edited this anthology that came out recently. I think it's just called Alchemical Traditions. Um, but anybody who's interested in Jung, I would recommend that they get that book and take a look at it because it, it has a whole bunch of different uh, contemporary scholars who are going back and looking at the full tradition of alchemy, which includes the physical stuff mm. and the spiritual stuff and the psychological stuff in a holistic way that I think you lose when you only look at Jung. So it, it ties in. The other thing you lose with Jung, too, is that you, you can't access the other traditions that come into it. So it'd be very hard to go from uh, Jungian alchemical concepts to Taoist alchemical concepts in a fruitful way. You might be able to go terminology-wise and kind of uh, archetypal symbols and that kind of thing, but in terms of practicing it or the you know actual the actual practice, the contemplative practices and the physical practices that go along with it, you would have difficulty seeing. But if you look at the Western alchemical tradition. Um, as it's grown up, as the alchemical tradition, I think you get a lot better um, grounding to kind of start to look at what other uh, areas are doing. So, well, to me, it sounds like you're saying, look, it, 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 he's the one that everybody looks at, and there's, you know, which is unfortunate because there's a whole bunch of uh, tradition, um, technology, uh, methodologies that are 
not really what his interpretation was, but since he 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 had such a a popular and pretty way of presenting it, a lot of people think that's all it is, and that 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 sounds like what your argument is about it. Yeah, and he had a he had a fruitful way of looking at it too. I mean, I think that's the other thing is that it's not that his methods don't lead to results. Yeah. Um, is just do they lead to the full result? Do they lead to what the alchemists were were pointing to? Yeah. Um, you know, and when you're dealing with something like alchemy, it's with any of this stuff, you say that as a blanket term, and then you start to look at it, and it's like, oh wait a second, there's no <laughs> there's no single thread here. Like we have all these different aspects of it, you know. Um, and how does that how does that play out? And that's one of the one of the struggles with these things, and why I think that limiting it to young or being overly excited about young or being overly focused, you start to lose uh, a lot of different uh, nuance to what's being talked about because mm-hmm. it's a lot deeper. And that's one of the things too with the the physicality of the UFO. It, it, it all kind of floats in the same thing. I mean, it's the physicality of the UFO. You know. It's funny you say that. It's funny you say that. When you first started talking about alchemy here, the first thing I flashed on was the metal they're talking about in the in the news conference. Yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. If you look at the no, if you look at the history, if you look at the history of um, Falconelli, the Falconelli Circle of Alchemists, Mm -hmm. and you read what they're writing about in terms of some of the later stuff where um, Cancellier is writing about his experiences with um, the man who called himself Falconelli. Um, a lot of very like you know you've got these time travel elements you've got these these elements that are very close to the ufology stuff and then when you look at um, I think uh, the dark lore that um, uh, was the history the occult history piece that they did I think in volume four um, which is kind of a look at like Mead Lane and some of the the occult elements of the oh you mean uh, Greg Taylor's uh, uh, anthologies. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's one that there's one that goes into that stuff. And when yeah. you start to look at those things, it does. It becomes very odd. You start to see these odd comparisons, and that was actually build up to my excitement to the New York Times piece and and everything was looking into um, some of the Rosicrucian traditions, the physical tradition. There was the the Rosicrucianism that is kind of the popular idea of it, but there was actually a political movement, um, a, a kind of magical political movement in the 1700s post manifestos so like in the 18th century um which came out of the manifestos but it was a lot it was really focused on like theurgy which is a form of contemplative magic and um, alchemy and when you look at the physical experiments that they were doing it's really interesting because they were doing a lot of stuff with optics with lights with mirrors with with that kind of thing and when you start to read that it does have these strange kind of uh, correspondences to the idea of the alloys and that, you know. And there was, that was actually something that um, Dennis William Hauck, who's the former president of the International Alchemist Guild, or Alchemy Guild, um, is also a ufologist and also a parapsychologist. And maybe not a parapsychologist because that would be a technical term, but he's interested in those fields as well. And he's written about those fields. Hmm. And he's written about the crossovers while also writing just straight traditional alchemical stuff. Um, but showing different ways that they that they parallel. Um, the, Such as? Out-of-body, out-of-body experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a long tradition in the alchemical tradition of inducing out-of-body experiences. Um, a lot of the stuff that somebody like, um, what's his name, the uh, Monroe Institute, Bob Monroe, 
yeah. a lot of the stuff that Bob Monroe's writing about, you find similar kind of narratives of the out-of-body experience coming out of the um, alchemical traditions of out-of-body experience and that, or, you know, people that were in parallel to those traditions. Um, there's a huge, a lot of the spiritualist stuff, um, which becomes kind of uh, an open public movement, actually had its roots in some closed occult circles that were doing theurgy, scrying, and that kind of thing, which you again see in the contactee movement right. in the 50s. A lot of them were doing scrying and, and different channeling techniques. And you see this kind of path moving through. So there's a lot of different parallels, kind of jumping around all over the place. And no, that's that okay. That's that's what this show does. Necessarily made sense to a point, but no, um, it makes total sense to me. To look into. If you were th- if yeah, you were uh, systematic about it, probably would have made less sense to me. Um, <laughs> I remember at the end, uh, the end of uh, I gave a talk last year at the UFO Congress, and um, at the end, uh, it was just it was about my. Uh, co-creation thing and information theory and all that being used um, in ufology. But somebody at the end said, well, you say things have to change and things, you know, we have to do things differently and maybe, you know, explore different ways of studying this. Well, what would be one of your suggestions? And I thought about it for a second and I said, well, I don't know if this is going to make a lot of people very happy, but maybe something like divination. Yeah. And about, and about 30 or 40 people clapped, which really surprised me. <laughs> I thought there was going to be like this stunned silence, like, what's wrong with you? Are you, you know, are you some kind of, you some kind of occult wacko? And I did not, I did not mention occultism, I think once in the entire lecture. But when they asked, I said, well, maybe something like divination. And there was, there was approbation there, which was stunning to me. So that's, and that you know and and that that's something that's interesting because that is um another way that all these things are kind of like moving back into a, a central pattern. Mm-hmm. Um Dean Radin's upcoming book is all about the the concept of magic. Yeah, real magic and consciousness cool. studies. Yeah, you know, and then he's he's talking about magical practices. Right. I don't know if he's using that as kind of an overlay for whatever, but Mark Bacuzzi from Winbridge um, had commented when I was talking about uh, Raiden's book that the way he looks at it is, is very much that science is in a, in a way a certain type of ritual, that you're, you're assembling these ritual elements of the scientific process mm-hmm. and gaining results from that, you know, and that's if you go back to the traditional way that uh, the occult sciences were practiced, they were very direct in, you know, methodology and the rest of that stuff. It's as it bleeds into the popular culture, it gets a lot looser. But, you know, if you go back to like Agrippa and that, like there's clear instructions for what's supposed to happen, how you're supposed to do it and that kind of thing. And the same thing with divination, you know, I mean, there's, you can get results. You know, it's something testable. You can do it and you can yeah. see if it has a result. It's see, a testable the, thing. Yeah, sure. this is a limitation of the scientific method that uh, I, I think that is maybe breaking down in that if you have an individual viewpoint reaction one time uh, result that that's useless um i think that what you're saying here is that maybe some people are thinking maybe that's not so useless anymore and um it also reminds me when we were talking you said that uh um in the early 20th late 19th early 20th century when a lot of these scientific breakthroughs were happening a la you know um einstein and the curies etc that some of these people were coming directly from a 
tradition that was not specifically scientific as we know it now, but it was more it was more of a classical uh, in a classical tradition where um, these things that b- people consider like divination and 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 uh, and meditation and all these things you're talking about here were considered part of the method of get of, of uh, gaining knowledge. Um, and oh yeah, the, and, the, and, and that that was lost. Yeah, that was lost uh, after, uh, during, and after World War II, and I, I found that fascinating because I, you know, you think maybe that's what was going on, but I never really looked into that and how important that yeah, was in a lot of the uh, 20th century's knowledge. Yeah, and if you look at Mitch Horowitz, has done a lot um, to write that into the the public discourse. Um, you know, and we talked about it earlier the history of New Thought and the spread of New Thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's some scholars that put together uh, an archive online. Um, that covers occult and uh, spiritualist periodicals, and it's huge. And you start to realize just how much of an influence it is, and the names that are in there, the um, you know politicians and uh, scientists and that that are that are looking at this stuff. It's amazing to see the level of society that was involved in these ideas that have become you know uh, just completely fringe. And it's still kind of prevalent today. You know, there's still, uh, you know, a lot of the people who are doing, you know, you think about something, uh, you know, a cult in our age, right? Like LSD. And then you think about uh, Silicon Valley and the microdosing, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, you know, this thing that people are like, oh, drug users and LSD is crazy, blah, blah, Well, the people who are developing, you know, the, the next cutting edge technology is sitting there in Silicon Valley microdosing and going to Burning Man, you know? And, um, you have a similar situation in uh, the early 19th century where, you know, a lot of these, these circles of people, I mean, you look at the early Society for Psychical Research, mm-hmm. the crossover is amazing. You've got Bergson, who's the president of the mm-hmm. Society for a short period of time. His sister is Lena Mathers. You mean Henri Bergson, yeah, the, uh, the philosopher? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he was, he was a president and his sister's Moina Mathers, you know, so you've got right there at a family meeting, you've got, the one of the heads of the Golden Dawn and the head of the Society for Psychical Research, you know, and so there's crossover in in these fields. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised then. if and there it, was a physical scientist or two in there too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, William Crooks and there were yeah right, a, a right. bunch of different uh-huh. a bunch of different people, and that that all kind of bleeds. Or you look at uh, Wolfgang Pauli, um, mm-hmm. right, and Jung, and that circle of people, the Aranus group, which includes Mercia Iliad and. Um, uh, Heidegger and uh, a bunch of different folks that all met up and Corbin with his theory of the imaginal and Jung Culliano who wrote a great book called Eros and Magic in the Renaissance, which is another book that I would recommend um, to look at because it deals with Renaissance concepts of the fantastic and the imaginal and how they uh, were viewed as a way to change society. So that mm-hmm. that's a really fascinating book um, mm-hmm. that deals with that. But all those people were mixing together and that was a very high society circle, or you look at who Dali was hanging out with and all the, the alchemical and occult theories that were going into surrealism. Right. Um, into the 70s, really, I mean, in terms of the, you know, Warhol as a hub of that, or Burroughs, and the people that he influenced. There's a book that came out recently where a medical doctor was talking about a lot of his groundbreaking theories were based on reading Burroughs and, um, you know, seeing how Burroughs broke down these categories and that. So there's an interesting interplay there that um, that you know kind of gets covered over in the, the the status quo narrative 
of how things actually get done and the way that they seem to actually get done in, in any level of society is there's some amount of weird there. You yeah. Know, I hate to pull it, around. Almost pull it back to Diana, but she's kind of, that. that's, I think what a good deal of the theme of uh, American cosmic is. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, and that kind of thing. And it, it's, I think that's another thing that's that you know you're talking about the kind of normalization of this stuff. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out because because of the areas that it touches, you know, um, and and where those things kind of go and what our expectations are for for certain areas of society and what's actually going on there, you know. Yeah. You get this, you know, hint of a story that Valet used to hang out with Anton LaVey in the 1960s. Right. And you're wondering, yeah. what the oh, hell yeah. is he doing hanging out with Anton LaVey? And, and in the context of what we're talking about here, it makes perfect sense that he and people like him would be pulling influences, information, and anything useful from any place they could get them. And it, it behooves them to go out in these kind of expeditions to find things that uh, find inspiration in places that n- normally people wouldn't. Let's let's go out and look for gold in an area that nobody's ever looked for gold before, and there might be tons of it. There might be nothing. There might be junk. There might be a lot of dirt and a lot of things you don't need. But every once in a while, you find something interesting, which you classically, right. if you're classically trained, is not something you would uh, – that's not even something you would think of. As people have said before, and I, I keep in, in front of my mind all the time, you you have to know your search terms. you got to have the right search terms or you're not going to find anything. Right. That's exactly, yeah, that, exactly. And that, and if you don't spread wide your net, you know, at the beginning, then you won't get, you won't get what you're looking for. Yeah. There's, uh, in, I think, uh, Robert Anton Wilson's Cosmic Trigger. I mm-hmm. think he's got a little bit of the valet in there. Some, like, anecdotal stories about valet hanging out with, um, OTO folks. Oh, really? Okay. Maybe, that. maybe I read it there. And LeVay was involved in a lot of that stuff too, because he was a cultural hub. And that's the other thing you got to look at, like what their what their involvement is in the culture. LeVay had was crossing; uh, he was a liminal figure, right? Like he he right. sat in the center of a really interesting, strange cultural mix that included, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. and like Jane Mansfield, all these different, yeah, Jane Mansfield, all these different people that were involved in that. Plus, you know, the other folks that would come around just because you know he was. He was Anton LaVey, so you get, and you still get that now. I mean, you get up until he died. You know, he was bringing in like all these different influences to meet each other that are still producing things. You know, yeah. I think the most useful thing that could happen is a you know a scientist meeting an artist, and if you can get those two in one person, uh, Raiden's like that. Right. He's, he's one of those people that has a perfect artistic sensibility combined with a very sharp scientific sensibility. And that's where some of the that's that's where that gold is is is, is being mined. Right. Uh, Mario was like that too. My uh, my late friend Mario Pozzaglini, incredibly sharp person, very good psychologist, clinical psychologist, but he was also channeling and looking at alien writing things like that. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, which is fascinating. I was introduced by his work by uh, the the last year you had the Jeff, which I started looking into the. The, actually, the excluded middle interview that you had with him and, and stuff—that was amazing. Yeah, the whole thing is in um, the excluded middle book, and then I, I wrote a little bit more about it in in the uh, an, an entire chapter, the last chapter of the of uh, my anthology book. There, the um, defies language was all about Mario because becoming friends with him re- really affected me deeply, and I think it was a result. The result of that is a, is right now me here sitting here talking to you. 
because he opened my mind up about uh, a lot of these things, and I'm not classically trained in anything, so I really didn't care where the information was coming from, as, as long right. as it was interesting and the person was intelligent and fun, which Mar- Mario certainly right. was. You know, and and everybody I have on my shows like that, intelligent, fun, and coming from a complete, you know, from a place that, uh, especially my fun one is when I learn. You know, every show I learn something and. Um, if that can keep happening, that you know, wh- why would you? Why else would you <laughs> do anything like what we're doing? It's uh... yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, I remember when I first started like writing like blog stuff, and I had written something about parapsychology, and somebody commented, "You must be getting paid a lot because <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're you're acting as a propagandist for this lie or whatever," you know. And I was like, "Wow, <laughs> yeah, sure, I guess." You yeah, know, that's like the other doing thing. Doing it for free on my yeah. own dime, like yeah, that wasn't. I think Diana might have said this in the interview. She said, "You you get to the place where the smartest people in the room are the ones that believe the craziest stuff." Yeah, that's the best place to be. That's what I'm always looking for. That <laughs> <laughs> always trying to identify the freak in the room. Like you know, like where's where's the good stuff? Like, <laughs> and now the room is huge because you can find almost anybody online. So. Um, yeah, and it's it's amazing. I mean, it's so beautiful. I mean, the fact you know, just my Facebook post, right? And now we're talking. Like that's that's great, and that's one of the reasons that I try to use Facebook as a a communications method. You know, as a writing like a post that's got some substance to it. You know, people don't always read it or want that on Facebook, but it leads to fruitful communication. You know. No, well, you, the thing is, you throw you throw seeds out there, and some of them grow, and they come back to you, and whatever. And that that's right. you know, p- people have to interact with each other. Um, people have to do good work and interact with each other, and that's how I, I think that's how things move forward. And if it doesn't move forward, at least people are having fun. So, right. <laughs> if you if you're not having fun, then why bother? But if you're lucky, yeah, there's, something there's good and and useful and and uh, what's the word and, uh, and that moves things. I don't know about forward, but moves understanding forward it happens, and uh, that's always a great thing. And it, it's uh, if you can cultivate it right, it happens a lot more often. So, oh yeah, yeah, and it, it's great too because I mean, there's so many talented people out there. You know, one of the the folks that I met online was my friend uh, Craig Williams, and it's been really exciting to see his work develop. Um, he's doing some interesting stuff with his um, Ayurvedic and tantric practice. Really? What, what, what's he doing? How's and, he? How's he doing that? Um, he so he is. He's got a really interesting. It's it's beyond syncretism. Um, he is. He's initiated into a number of different uh, traditions, but um, you know he's a practicing Ayurvedic. Uh, practitioner but mm-hmm. that was a you know he so he practices ayurveda in austin um and he also does this really interesting um traditional um tantric uh shavite tantrism but through a lens that opens it up to um michael uh Berdio's, uh gnostic uh, voodoo tradition um but all, not not so much reliant on what he wrote but taking those practices and then pulling them into a uh, legitimate tantric practice. Um, and I'm, I'm being real general here. It's not really proving my point at all, but um, <laughs> if you read his work, <laughs> look up Craig Williams entering the desert 
look at his work, you'll see what I mean. It's very, it's very diverse. It's very unique and it's very contemporary. Mm-hmm. And he's taking the the roots of these traditions and applying them to uh, contemporary issues, including um, things like Valais theories of ufology and that, and working that in. And we have uh, there's a, there's this guy Reginald Crosley who's a really fascinating guy. He wrote this book called um, uh, oh, Man the Voodoo Quantum Leap, and <laughs> a great it, title. Uh, yeah, and he took, he's from Haiti, he's a Haitian, so I guess there was a surrealist movement in Haiti for a brief time in the 60s, and he was one of the founding members. He's now a retired nephrologist in um, Maryland, and he is also a Bible school teacher, but he, he's from Haiti, and from his you know birth was initiated into traditional Haitian uh, voodoo practices. So he um, he writes this book, Quantum uh, Voodoo Quantum Leap, which takes Valet, his traditional voodoo uh, stuff, the Philadelphia Experiment mythos, <laughs> and all this, all these strange like quantum physics, you know, drawing from like uh, Nick Herbert and them, and pulling it all into this this working kind of exploration of African uh, metaphysics, which is just wild. And Craig introduced me to this book, and Craig's actually in touch with uh, Crosley. And so bringing that into his work, too, it's just this fascinating mix. But it all happened from meeting him online. And, um, you know, we're now talking and, and conversing and, and that kind of thing. And it's, it's really fascinating. And that's the kind of thing I see building is just, you know, all these unique individuals coming together for this conversation around the campfire of UFOs and, and weirdness, you know, which is great. Yeah. Well, there's there's a, um, as you say here, there's a uh, breaking down of barriers and um, categories. And I think that's a good thing um, because the categorization is, has uh, hindered everything. And it seems like there was a flowering, as you say, of... Uh, of um, science and philosophy, et cetera, in the late 19th up to the, maybe up to the World War II. Uh, and the that culture went away. Um, and since then, you know, it hasn't really been in in uh, evidence. Uh, now it seems like it's flowering again in a way that, especially with this New York Times article, whatever you think of the source of it or whatever, uh, can't be stopped. Um, I hope it can't be stopped. And whatever I don't you th- think it can. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope not. Well, I look back, I wrote a, I actually wrote a blog post in 2011 talking about, um, Esalen did this series of seminars um, looking at the occult renaissance, mm-hmm. um, or the esoteric renaissance. When, when do they do and, that? And uh, that was late 90s, like 98, I think. Uh, Kripal was heading it up, and I think it started in 98. Oh, okay. The one that I think I was specifically referencing in that in the blog posts was um, one from 2004. But the same people that were involved in those things are now still active and um, in conversations and, and promoting this stuff. So, you know, Kripal put those things on. I was writing about it in 2011, seeing this kind of foment through uh, morbid anatomy and these different little hubs of culture. Mm-hmm. And it's continued through. I mean, now Kripal's put out his work. It's more developed. It's causing a lot of uh, different conversations to arise from people, you know, critical of it or accepting of it and working with it or whatever. But those same people are around. And so it has grown. You know, there's evidence for it having grown. And I've seen that. 
then been able to kind of track it through digital. So I'm excited because I don't think it can, you know, I don't think it, whatever it's going to be, is going to be interesting. You know, it's going to continue developing in an interesting way. So, yeah. Uh, I've got a question from one of the listeners that came through, uh, let's see, over an hour ago. Sorry, Phil. Phil's asking, <laughs> um, have you ever read Neil Stephenson's In the Beginning Was the Command Line? No, that, that, that sounds good. I, I will have to check that out. Great. There's another thing we got to pick up. <laughs> yeah, that's another book. Thanks. Thanks oh, great. <laughs> so how do you get through all these books? Yeah, so I've taken the the digital, the schizophrenia or, or just kind of schizotypal um, brain patterning, and just apply that to the book. So <laughs> I don't like to I don't I don't like to read books all the way like through like straight through. I like to kind of um, take them in chunks and yeah. mix it up, you know. And uh, oh yeah, you told me this. Make make sure to read the whole thing, but but read it in different patterns Mm -hmm. because then different things come out, you Mm -hmm. know? So, um, I think that's, so it's just kind of spotty. And I also, I don't have a, I don't have a work life separation, um, because I do digital media. So everything that I'm doing blends in together. You know, if I'm doing the stuff for the university, all the skills that apply there and doing the social media and the digital media come right back to, my own research and my own research is always based in, you know, uh, just life, like people's experiences of it. So, um, that's, that's easy to transfer. And so I'm kind of always just reading, engaging in it, you know? Um, and that's one of the reasons too, that like the Facebook posts are a little bit more involved is because I don't have a lot of time to do a cohesive, uh, article (laughs) or something, you know? So it's much easier for me to just kind of, splash it up on Facebook as almost notes to myself that I can go back to. And then if it, if it actually gets some traction, develop it. And then also people comment too. So then I can, you know, it's kind of like peer review, <laughs> peer right. review in process. Yeah. You know, well, so. yeah. Com- comment. That's, I can't remember who said that to me, uh, that, uh, peer review now is, uh, uh, Facebook is peer review or, or, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. People commenting on your post is now peer review. <laughs> it, 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 it acts that way. You know, it's great. I had, uh, when I posted that thing on the, um, uh, what was that? The, oh, I don't even remember the term because it's new to me, but the, um, whatever that last thing I posted it on with the, um, the, oh, yeah, the I know what you're machine talking learning. Yeah, adversarial, yeah, inpl- adversarial inputs yeah. and cognitive evolution. That's right. Yeah, yeah, the adversarial inputs, that thing. So that came from, um, Peter Rothman, who's an applied mathematician lecturing um, at UC, uh, man, it's not Santa Barbara, maybe it is Santa Barbara, but he's a lecturer out in California, Mm -hmm. Um, applied mathematician, brilliant, brilliant guy. And he posts all these amazing things about developments in machine learning. And so as I was thinking about the cybernetic stuff, I'm looking at his feed and the stuff's coming up and I'm like, wow, these are, this is perfect. This adversarial input thing is great. Cause that's exactly, you know, in an, in a machine learning situation, the adversarial input is the thing that makes it so that the machine can't recognize it. It skews its recognition. And so, right. So you know, how can you the way that we carry that over into psychological uh, uh, yeah, theories yeah, about exactly. uh, anomalies? Yeah. 
Yeah. And then, so I posted that and then, you know, I didn't tag him cause, uh, you know, sometimes like you can over tag and then it, it gets annoying <laughs> and stuff like that. So, so I, I try to be polite on the tagging, you know, yeah. like, unless it's something really interesting that's going to peak somebody, I try not to tag him. So, yeah. but he saw it and he commented and gave me more references, which was fantastic. And then we, we talked a little bit about it. Um, so, you know, I knew I wasn't totally just jumping off a cliff into machine learning without knowing anything about it. Um, yeah. was able to talk to him, who's a you know, top-level applied mathematician, and all through Facebook, which most people make fun of and, you know, think it's just, you know, whatever, just some kind of, like, cat picture collection. But it, <laughs> it's so much more than that, you know? No, people keep saying to get off of it, and I, I use it as a tool just like you do. I want people to listen to the show. I want to interact with people. I get in touch with people through it. And... I don't have really any problem with it. I don't see things I don't want to see. Uh, I don't really get in any arguments with anybody because of my do not engage policy. Um, yeah, yeah. So exactly. it it works fine for me as a tool. I mean, you have to you have to train it as a tool. Like you have to respect it as a tool in a way that'll. Uh, I'm sorry. The person you are trying to reach has a voicemail box that has not been set up yet. What a strange ending to the show. Let me see if he's uh, texting me on. Uh, on Facebook, as we were just talking about. Cool. So we were talking about. Um... Yeah, it was. Uh, there was a little about bit about machine learning, how that can be applied to anomaly research, and then we started talking about Facebook and how Facebook is kind of a. <clears throat> it's a twenty first century peer review, and yeah. Um, but what you said right before um, I called you. Uh, uh, that the, 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 there were things that what did you say something about that there there's so much beyond the shining saucer yeah there really is it's uh i was pr- i'm pretty unmoored i don't know i've been looking at this stuff for a while i mean not not ufos specifically and so when i like turned my vision to ufos suddenly i'm like oh wow well wow you know it's just this overwhelming because all the weird syncs up with a ufo you know what I mean? Like there's, <laughs> yeah. no matter where you look, like it's like, oh, John Lennon's song was pretty good. Oh, there's a UFO behind that. Okay. Like, you know, like Tony Robbins, pretty interesting. Oh, he probably saw a UFO. You know, there's, it's like the UFO is everywhere. It seems like at some point it becomes hmm, a a beacon for people who are ready for it. And it may yeah. unlock something that was sitting there before, or maybe they're unlocking it themselves. I don't know, co-creation, but um yeah it's like a skeleton key i never really thought about it people keep saying there's all these um similarities and if you're interested in one you're generally interested in the others but it seems like a a legitimate nexus right it's yeah so let's we can talk about that because i think that's okay and we don't have to go for for two hours or an hour or anything we can just talk till we're like okay that's good so yeah saucer is nexus which is funny because Saucer Smear, the original title of the magazine, was Nexus. Oh, really? Yes, yes. Um, that was Jim Mosley's title, one of the titles for what eventually became Saucer Smear. I interviewed him. <laughs> when I interviewed him, he, yeah, exactly. When I interviewed him, he said um, in the mid 90s, he, he told me, you know, it used to be called Nexus, which means a connecting link. Right. Um, so I think 
maybe he was aware of this at the time, but I think he he meant that he was a connecting link, connecting all the researchers, and um, things were going through him, and so he was he was kind of a a way station or whatever you want to call it, or a uh, way to get news out in the in the era when people got news out through fan letters or fa- I'm sorry, fan um, uh, zines, I guess they weren't called zines then, but um, newsletters from you know uh, small groups. So he chose Nexus, strangely enough. Wow. And then it became saucer speaking. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> That's incredible. What a great, like, wow. Especially because, I don't know, like, knowing Tim, who was around Jim a lot. Like, yeah, they were good friends. And knowing Hanson in that, like, knowing the mental shift from, like, Nexus to Saucer Smear, just that <laughs> title shift. Yeah. That's such an incredible, that's such an incredibly potently information-packed moment that, yeah, uh, just spoken in that. That's incredible. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I uh, somebody got mad at me for bringing up Mosley recently because they I can't remember it was on Facebook somewhere I think that um, Mosley had said something about Don Ecker's uh, uh, military service, which wasn't true. He never bothered to check with him and put it in saucer smear. And I'm not even sure if he retracted it, but uh, he made enemies too. Jim did. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, tons I'm of just- them. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, that's in parapsychology. Uh, George Hansen is similar, um, in terms of like his reception in the field is is shaky, <laughs> depending on who you talk to and who he burned at some point. With oh, really? just being really direct, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it. I wish I could be really direct because um, <laughs> the the the, um, the the noise in my life would go down to almost nothing. I would have a lot less friends, and people would be writing me nasty notes all the time, which I don't like. Right. Um, and I even if I don't like somebody, I I don't want to be fighting with them, and I don't want to be on their on their shit list or anything because it's just it's just noise for both of us. It's useless, and it keeps us from oh, yeah. doing anything useful. So, well, and um, being bad places is never good too yeah some know. people just like it though some people like being a lightning rod and i think jim was one of those people yeah yeah and it's useful you know it it, it has its place the lightning rod has its place mm-hmm. yeah exactly it's just not if it's not your thing it's not your thing do not engage yeah i i I'm, i don't have a lightning rod sticking up i have a i have a big roof on my my barn that says <laughs> do not engage painted in big red letters <laughs> You know, unless you have something interesting to say that we can both get something out of. I'm not going to, I'm I'm not a headhunter. I'm not, you know, um, David, <laughs> David Biedney used to do this. That was the first incarnation of um, Paracast. That's, they would just find people and, and tear them apart. Um, right, um, right. Which was in a lot of cases a valuable service, but, you know, that's not my service. <laughs> right. <Yeah>, right. <laughs> Somebody said this program was an echo chamber because I don't really, ar- really ever argue with anybody. Um uh, part of that is probably because an aversion to uh, 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 conflict, and the other part of it is if I feel it is relevant and that they are actually pointing out a, a flaw in my reasoning, which has happened no, more than a few times, then I want to talk to them about it. But if they just want right. to game, say, argue, I don't particularly care because most most uh, interactions like that are just waiting to get, get your word in and not really listening to what the other person says. and. So I think it's rare when there's a disagreement and people communicate. Well, and also with your, I mean, as you look at stuff like the contact, the contactee groups, like if you have like a real, um, if you don't let people talk and just have that conversation, that get, that would get real difficult really quickly. You know, yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that, oh yeah, 
the subject matter itself lends you lends to uh, to listening skills and and that you know. Yeah, I, I do notice when I'm talking too much, which is probably what I was doing just now. And we got off the rail there with um, with Nexus and with uh, <laughs> and the Nexus of the of the UFO and how that uh, uh, flows into so many other areas of the paranormal and the unknown and the controversial and the. Uh, and per- and personal things with people, I think it's a it attracts a certain type of personality as well, or certain types actually. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Well, and the experience itself, though, and that's kind of the thing that struck me was the fact that people are having these extreme experiences, you know, and then from those extreme experiences, we get these cultural moments. Uh, I think I know what you're saying, but how so? Well, um, the. Just the number of people that are having these experiences in their lives and then how deeply that experience is tied to either creative pursuits that they do or their worldview, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you see it in terms of like uh, celebrities and that, you know, there's um, uh, I don't know. It's just it. You get you get the celebrity actually having like a contact experience, right? And then that kind of like filters into their their oh, right. art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but then you also have like just this. I mean, on Facebook, you get a good picture of just how many regular folks mm-hmm. have really extreme, <laughs> like extreme uh, worldviews that are 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 brought about by their experiences or their perceptions of their experiences. Um, a lot of which is tied to this, you know, UFO culture. Yeah. Uh, I actually, in my notes here from the beginning of the show, being as that this is what about three weeks later or more. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, one of the first thing we talk things we talked about was how the UFO phenomenon changes your mental state. What does right. it do to your brain? I was online with a friend of mine, uh, Robert Brandstetter a few weeks ago, and I found one of our conversations Facebook messages, and um, I, I put it up on Roddy Mysterioso's site, and I said one of the things I said was, I have no way of knowing what happens to somebody, you know, what happens to your psyche when it's jumbled by having one of these experiences. I don't have any access to that experience. I have to listen to people and talk to people and all that to even figure out what's going on. And then we also talked about if you do get deep into that and, and uh, that culture, or at least people that have had an extraordinary experience... Um, and people who have formed um, outsider, outside the mainstream uh, belief systems and all that, how do you understand what's going on with them and not go native? You know what I mean? And the yeah. thing is you have to go a little bit native just to kind of understand where they're coming from and what they're talking about without buying completely into the system. Um, so it's hard to keep the objectivity uh, without uh, starting to sound crazy to people, I say things, and I'm thinking, oh, "God, what are people going to say? They're going to think they're going to pull the one thing I said and say that's what my belief is." And it's not; it was just an idea I had. <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's the thing is this: it's uh, the reality of ideas, you know, and how those things kind of filter in to like really direct stuff. I mean, it's just it's wild to me how so many people who have these experiences are are way normal. You know, yeah, you wouldn't um, expect. And, yeah, and and the, yet the I mean, you look at even the like the classic contactees. These are fairly normal people within. I mean, even Adamansky, who was like a cult leader almost, but like 
in terms of like who he is, like he's kind of a normal guy. Yeah. You know, it's not like, I mean, cause you, you put him up against like, like David Bowie or something. Right. And like Bowie's stage persona. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yes, I do. <laughs> and they both have this extreme effect on culture, which is, but Adamanski's like, you Adam, know, he's Adamski. Bowie, uh, Adamski, yeah, Adamski is like, he's hovering behind, uh, he's hovering behind Bowie. Yeah. You know, he's this almost like, because he's so normal, you don't see him there, you know? Yeah, and then, he didn't turn into, into an art movement. Um, right. You know, but although I did, did have that lecture I did that were the contactees of uh, a un, unrecognized art movement. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, that's I love the yeah, that's yeah, I I the ephemera that's produced is incredible. Uh-huh. Like it is like its own art form. It's yes. it's really its own genre. It's incredible because there's color palettes like you were pointing that out, I think, with uh, the the uh, cover art. Um. Oh, you mean that, for the, uh, the, 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 the Afer Adamski book? Yes. Yeah. And that the cover art that, uh, you know, it had borrowed elements from the classic contact eBooks. Right. Well, that, yeah. And they all, not all of them, but a lot of them, like George, um, Van Tassel produced these drawings of, to illustrate concepts and they almost, they, and you know, he's been looking at, um, at least occult literature, maybe alchemical literature, whatever, to produce these kind of drawings of and these charts yeah. of um, where planets are, what what colors associated with them, what idea you know it's um, it's artwork in itself. It's like looking at a uh, uh, like I said, like a um, some old occult book, but it, it's a it's a it's a new what it's a new religion based around what he thinks is his source. Uh, I had another. I just. Uh, uh, one of uh, one of my friends, Tim Cridlin, pointed out this woman, Paulina Peavy, who was an uh, artist. She was born in 1901 or something, died in 1996 or 98. And she said that she, uh, some extraterrestrial entity was channeling her artwork to her for, her for her entire life. She was on Long John Nibble, and she channeled entities while she was on. She was wearing this big surrealist-looking mask that she said she had to wear to communicate with the with the with uh, whoever her space friends were. And I found that absolutely fascinating it was it was a direct connection between artistic inspiration and uh contactee type um phenomenon yeah and and the tie to the uh the theosophical stuff too which you're pointing out with the the artwork you can see the yeah the philosophical uh drawings of cosmologies and stuff um yeah that's a really i actually was just looking at today there was an article i did on uh robert e howard the writer for conan um, don't know him, but go ahead. You know Conan, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah, so the he was he was part of the Lovecraft circle. Of oh, writers. okay, okay, okay. Um, and he was a Texas guy. That I mean, he wrote, wrote like Conan, and he wrote a bunch of like kind of adventure, more on the adventure, weird tales end of stuff. Um, but when you read his letters, he writes about how the reason that his fiction is so engaging is that he's not writing fiction; he's writing memories. And he kind of gives a description of a, a trance state and trance channeling. Oh, my God. He was Richard Shaver. Yeah, no, exactly. And so you start to like you start. I was looking at the letters and then I was looking at stuff like the Shaver thing and how, you know, uh, that was sculpted in a way through fiction, you know, almost. And like you get this amazing connection between good science fiction and trance channeled texts, you know. Um, but it's fascinating how that, that comes in because you don't like people who are familiar with Howard 
wouldn't necessarily think of him as sitting there and he was a Texas, you know, guy like channeling Conan. But yeah. <laughs> in, in essence, he was using channeling techniques and producing these results, which when you look back at some of the channel text, it's real similar, you know, and he was influenced by the, uh, the, uh, theosophical society and a lot of the theosophical works. So, but it's interesting to see that, that come into an actual creative process, you know? Yeah. Well, it's similar to other people's creative processes where they say, uh, m- you know, musicians always say this, uh, whatever source they choose to assign to it. But musicians and artists say that uh, a lot of times they're pulling something out of another source or from the future or whatever, and it's it's coming through them. They didn't create it. It's just they have a they have a line to whatever that information source is, and it seems like depending on your personality and how you um, think about things and your circle of friends and your genetics and all that determines the model you use for that whatever the source of that uh, information is. Right. And then there's the there's the flying saucer sitting right there reflecting it, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> drawing it out of people. It yeah. shows up, hovers in. Yeah, maybe it was, it's maybe it's some sort of uh, catalyst or avatar or something for for some people. But it's weird because then there's like the physical evidence, you know, like the the whole the whole thing's strange. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There shouldn't be any physical evidence of this this uh, this crazy channeled new agey crap. You know. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. You know. Did you watch that um, the Corbell uh, Patient Seventeen video? Yes, I actually went out to Palm Springs and watched it at, at, when he premiered it out at, at a uh, hotel out there in a, in a nice big uh, uh, open nineteen fifties looking meeting room. Uh, I, I, re- I would recommend the film to almost anybody that's into UFOs. I'm really interested in how, like, I think Corbell's interesting because he's, I mean, he's like an entrepreneur, media, using the new digital, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Like, he's kind of like our first look at, like, what ufology is going to look like going forward in terms yeah. of, like, of like multimedia. Because mm-hmm. you can think, like, Tom DeLonge's project's got that multimedia uh, aspect of it, right? Yeah. Um, and so this is kind of like what we're going to see. Yeah. Is this model of presentation. Yeah. And it was. He's got a top down, and I I think of Jeremy more as a bottom up at this point, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is is subject to new information coming in, uh, at least for me, especially in this area. (laughs) Yes. Especially in the misty fields of of UFOs. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah, it's a big, uh, it's amazingly, uh, it's mental uh, athletics really yeah well you know? the the only sane uh, thing to do is to not uh come to a conclusion on anything because if you do it spins you off into that crazy area where you just start defending and defending and fe- defending till you're sitting in a corner and only three other people re- uh agree with you right. and you and you're just you're just sitting there de- like de- fighting off um, ever you know the thousands of people, no thousands, but just so many things that don't agree with that are obvious to everybody else, but not to you. Um, so yeah, the only sane thing to do is to just be um, militantly agnostic, <laughs> but interested. Has the UFO Congress happened yet? That's next week, actually. When uh, Thursday, Friday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'm going on Thursday and uh, leaving on Sunday. Oh, excellent. So you're going to be there for most of the... 
Yeah, most of it. And uh, basically, I was going to see uh, Robbie talk and meet with him because I've never met him. I've known him for about, I don't know, three or four years now. Uh, uh, I helped him with the reframing the debate book. Um, we talk quite a bit. We're very good friends, but I've never actually physically met him because he lives in England. So they're right. flying him out there. And I was like, well, geez, this is a one-hour flight for me. I have to go. There's precious few people there I actually want to see speak, but everybody else that's attending, I mean, they're, the room parties and meeting people in the hallway and that, that's the important part of those conventions for me. And even if I'm giving a talk, is just communicating with people one-on-one uh, in person. Um, yeah, and so having many, that opportunity. Yeah. yeah like you said, I mean, Robbie's coming out from the UK, so. Yeah. And there's, there's so many things that happen at those conventions that people hear about way later uh, and that, that, that become trends later. And I really like to hear what people are talking about and then throw my two cents in. And it all goes into the mix and you gravitate towards people that are um, either of like mind or enough that they don't, they don't get offended by what you say. And I meet all those <laughs> people there. I mean, I've met people I diametrically disagree with. But we have a nice conversation, and it's no big deal, and nobody gets in a fight or feels bad, you know. And that, that's very valuable to me. And they've got a sweet T-shirt, too. Oh, do they? I, I saw one of them, I think, when the, the one that I'll, he said. No, all of them. He said, uh, here are our new T-shirts for this year. <laughs> <laughs> one of them actually looks like something that uh, look, looks almost like the T-shirt for my show that um, Jeff Ritzman designed. Uh, the one with the with the – there's a – a human, like, swami-looking thing and one with a kind of a simian monkey-looking thing with a saucer up at the top. Yeah. It's similar saucer aesthetics. Yeah. Yeah, there, there is a saucer aesthetic. I don't know. And it's, uh, uh, it's interesting to try and see people break the, break the convention. <laughs> break, break, break the convention the, a little bit. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, that's... Well, that's part of the, the saucer is the, the art movement that we were talking about, you know, there yeah. are, there are aesthetic disciplines to, uh, you know, to play with in that, in that art genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, and it's art so that there's no, there's no real rules. It just, it, whatever works for you and gets you to communicate the idea that's ineffable in your brain to other people, or at least to yourself is, is fair game. Um, which is why, uh, I think the visual arts, are a good research tool, um, not not least of, for the person that's creating it. Um, right. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I like. I do a lot of collage and stuff like that for that purpose because it really opens up. Like as you're trying to think, like how do I translate this concept into a visual? Mm-hmm. You know, um, it really opens up a lot of different ways to think about the concept. Yeah. And it's it's almost like talking therapy for yourself, although it's art therapy. Uh, right. You know, uh, people that have had um, extraordinary experiences, they often start doing drawings and writing about it, whatever. What you, who are never artistic to begin with, but they become that way just because it's it's needed at the time. I mean, their brain just says, "Look, you got to deal with this." So I'm going to make a drawing, or I'm going to make a video, or I'm going to produce something, and. If you're lucky, it makes sense to other people <laughs> right. and, and may communicate <laughs> right. something. Or if you, you know, you could be on the level of a David Lynch where it doesn't make any logical sense, but on a subconscious level, it makes total sense and communi- communicates directly. And there's a few people that are really good at that. Yeah, that's incredible to write something behind it, you know, to, to be able to, to work the, um, 
I don't know how to put it, but to compose, to compose in the subconscious as to compose in the consciousness, you know? Yes. Yes. I know exactly like, what you're saying. And the, to the point where somebody in that subconscious has the tools symbolically or whatever you want to call it, archetypally to be able to get what you're saying and not be, you know, you not, can't really put it in words. That, that's what, that's what the best art does is communicates ideas that can't be put into words. Um, and some people can do that. Some people do it through music. Uh, like I said, uh, uh, Lynch does it through uh, film. And uh, then, you know, surrealist artists like Paulina Peavy, who I was talking about, they, they communicated uh, through, you know, well, Lynch did too, through two-dimensional, through painting. Um, right. And it's funny, I, before I went into art history, uh, into my major, I didn't get, um, you know, any 20th century art. And it's taken me, and I, I did sort of after I got my degree, but it comes, you know, you come to a point in your life where you've got enough of a, what's the word, a vocabulary, where you can, you have more of a way to understand what people are saying through visual means because your cultural um, vocabulary has, has grown. And the, those ineffable messages come through those symbols that symbolize far more than what the symbol is. Um, and then, right. Yeah. Like that underlying language that's packed into those symbols. Right. That's yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that's actually a fascinating thing to me. And, and I, I wish I could do it, but it's sometimes, sometimes you see a piece of art and it just floors you and you can't explain to anybody why that is. Yeah. Yeah. And I love those. And I just say, I love that painting or whatever it is. And if somebody else does, you know, that they've also, pulled whatever meaning they can out of it on a deep level because it's going to mean something different to them even if they can't put it into words but it still affects them deeply the funny thing is about the ufo is is, as long as the the closer it gets to people it affects everybody deeply which is why i wrote that um ufos as a cosmic art project thing yeah it's true yeah and that i was just thinking that as you were talking about that was that like the the viewing of the, but, and it works even on a symbolic level. And that's the thing that that's really weird is that mix between the physical and the symbolic and that, you know, we were talking about a UFO aesthetic, right? But when people encounter that aesthetic, they start to view the world differently. Yeah. You know, even if they're hardcore skeptics, most normal, most average people are not hardcore skeptics, right? Like these people, there's certain people that are faced with the UFO and suddenly they become irrationally closed. You know, and like other people are look at the UFO and then suddenly they become irrationally open. Yeah. You know, and then there's there's a whole spectrum in between. But at no point when the person encounters this very simple symbol on its on its surface, are they not affected by it? And it's so strange, you know, because it's like this cast off object in culture that, you know, you're wandering through an alley and like you pick it up and suddenly, you know, you're in some other world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, the the other point I made in the article is, if you were an artist that could affect people the way that UFOs do, you'd be ridiculously famous, or I don't know what you you would be remembered forever. Right to change right. somebody's life view with one piece of artwork, who wouldn't want to be able to do that? <laughs> right. So it's, that's what kind of you know that kind of I was watching that Tony Robbins documentary, and that struck me about him. Because what he's what was that documentary? I saw you posted about it, but w- go ahead. Yeah, well, he uh, he. It was on. It's a Netflix documentary called "I Am Not Your Guru," mm-hmm. and um, it's basically just uh, 
camera behind the scenes at a Tony Robbins event. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but he is like the poster child of a certain subset of the human potential movement. Right. And it's incredible to see it right there working. You know, I mean, it's like, it's like a working model. You know what I mean? Like this is, here's a prototype. Like we have a prototype on film doing his thing. Totally, you know, just active, active psychology, manipulating people's habitual structures, um, you know, manipulating his own life. He's got this crazy regime that he goes through every day that completely organizes what his mental structure is, you know, and his physical structure to the point where he's even doing like um, electromotor stimulation where he's, um, you know, I, I, there's a term for it. You can buy them at like Walmart. They like, if you've got like a pain or something, you can put these little electrodes on. And oh, it, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, uh, whatever it's called, um, electromuscle stimulation or whatever. Yeah. So he, he goes from like um, using uh, isochronic and binaural beat meditation stuff and doing some meditation to uh doing some like physical postures then he goes into this like electro stimulation blanket thing that like works him out that way and then he goes to like do like a physical workout but this is like every day he's got this complete regime of creating himself into the perfect human potential plus the mind technology where he's like focusing his mind on these specific categories and then projecting it out and manipulating other people's mental structures it's incredible it's just it's amazing mm, yeah now i want to see it it's a it's a, he's doing his own brain hacking metaprogramming everything yeah yeah and he's doing it to himself too so it's not like he's just a you know a con man out there selling this thing he's using these mental and physical technologies whatever you know ethical or moral understructure whatever you know i mean he's rich what you know whatever that is separate from just right here you have an example of human the human body and mind as a technology being manipulated yeah and it's incredible it's it's really fascinating to watch oh yeah yeah okay now i want to see it <laughs> in addition yeah. to the 50 other things people are telling me to look <laughs> at and see and um some uh robert told me to watch five million years to earth again i hadn't seen it in years he said it, i think it's really relevant to what we're talking about now him and i uh i haven't seen it in years do you, you know that mo movie i'm talking about no what is that one it was a um british movie part of a series um I think called the Quatermass series. It was in Britain. It was oh. called Quatermass and the Pit. In the United yeah. States, it was called Five Million Years to Earth. Um, I can't remember. I do sometimes. know that one. Yeah, the one the 50, is, yeah, yeah. Fifties. Yeah. They were. Uh, the film was made. It was uh, set in the. I don't know. I don't know if it's set in the present time or the early twentieth century. Anyway, they're digging a, a subway for the another you know spur for the tube in London, and they find some kind of strange uh, artifact, and it turns out it's like. Um, some artifact is uh, I'm not remembering properly left there by apparently Martians, and when they dig it up, they they get like mental images of what the what these Martians were, which looked like locusts, and um, it's it's a very involved uh, uh, cosmology uh, presented by the movie. Um, 
as to you know what what physical art what a physical artifact could do if it was involved with if it had some kind of technology that could put pictures in your mind and give you direct experience of whatever this other civilization or you know non-human uh, race had uh, had done what they were like. Um, yeah, that's, that's what a, I remember I, of it. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. And then the and it ties into the wider uh, study of weirdness in that. There's poltergeist phenomena happening at one of the tenants next door to where this thing has crashed. And that's how right, like, right. That, that's part of like the plot is that um, this thing is is creating these paranormal experiences through how people are interacting with the um, yeah, this like almost like psychic technology or something. Okay. It's yeah, you remember yeah. it a little better than me, I guess. No, no, you remembered it perfectly. That, that was just the that was what caught me because of the parapsychology angle. Yeah, uh, you know. So, and I was when I when I first saw it, um, which was a couple years ago. Um, well, maybe more than that, maybe like four or five years ago. But I saw it when um, I was a teenager, it's been a good yeah, few years. I didn't even know it existed, and then I I watched it, and I was like, "Whoa, this was made when?" And because it really does parallel a lot of the. Um, the science and that as it goes forward into the like, um, you know, the remote viewing project and that, at least in terms of like the cultural interest in like the tie between space and channeling and psychism. And then it goes back. I mean, I don't know if they were drawing on the, the Mars Mars channeling stuff um, from the early parapsychology in the late 1800s or what, but it's, it's an amazing film that actually does have a lot of like, interesting thought experiment elements to it yeah i it's uh it's also an example of probably art pulling stuff out of the future uh yeah that's know, yeah you know pull, pulling concepts out of the future and presenting it to us way before most people are prepared to even um imagine that far like like star trek did that's a great point yeah that is a good point i it's and it, it yeah, that's interesting, especially with with the topic too. It's like art pulls forward the um, or pulls from the future concepts tied to UFOs. <laughs> like you know, like that's the the main access channel for future vision is the UFO. You know? Yeah, we did talk about probably the best um, the scientist researcher that would be well, not the best, but the one we would mo- most be interested in um, would be someone that has equal amounts of an artistic and a scientific mind um, yeah, to yeah. be able to use the left and right brains to draw inspiration from both. Uh, that's what a mind is supposed to do. Maybe that's what Tony Robbins is trying to do. <laughs> that that kind of is. No, that's the thing you get from watching this. It's like, whoa, this is, he's kind of wants to be a poet warrior, you know, like he wants to be, <laughs> he kind of wants to be the Ubermensch, you know, but not necessarily in a bad, he kind of, he comes off as, a, as aggressive and abrasive but not necessarily as offensive as he might um, from seeing him just in his like product placement aspect. Yeah. You know, the Tony, the man um, comes off as a little bit less dubious, you know? Oh, okay. He, he always used to scare me. I always thought he was a robot. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, that's the thing he kind of is. He's turning himself into a cyborg. He's sitting, I mean, he's I thought himself. this way back when, when he first started appearing on TV, I was like, what is yeah. this, Ken, what is this Ken doll trying to tell me? That's it. No, that's exactly. He's trying to tell you, become the robot, you know, like <laughs> embrace your, embrace your augmented self. Uh, <laughs> use, use, use your body as a technology. 
that and that's exactly his message and that's what's why i don't know that everybody watching it will get that um yeah that sounds like a mondo 2000 kind of uh, manifesto almost yeah <laughs> well it kind of i mean that's mondo 2000 comes out of the human potential movement that's right that's right you know and that's and that's what's amazing about tony rob because i mean I remember Tony Robbins info commercials and I wasn't thinking like that this was the penultimate uh, like psychic human being, you know, that they were no. trying to create. Um, watching this, though, I don't think that he's, you know, the the um, the apex of the program, but he's definitely uh, an example of what mind and body technology can do, you know. Did you feel there was collusion between? Was was there some going native between him and the filmmakers, or was it <laughs> fairly? Uh, uh, the, every uh, there was a Business Insider one that I saw from 2015, where a journalist gets embedded with him for his daily routine in Fiji, mm-hmm. and in every instance, he is so over the top that <laughs> there is that they can't they they can't they can't cross that bridge. They'll right. admit they'll 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 say you know like okay well we we weren't expecting him to be um, as legitimate as he is you get that sense where they're surprised by that but they're still appalled by his presence in this in some sense huh. you know um, but not in the newer one in the newer one as well yeah oh, I mean, really okay so Tony Robbins does not not provoke a uh, reaction from people he's so just aggressively pointed that, you know, anybody in his circumference is going to have a reaction that's going to be strong. And the journalists are used to kind of trying to push objectivity. And so when they butt up against Tony Robbins doing things that appear aggressive and appalling at certain times, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, like when he's doing these one-on-one interventions with people, he's mind hacking them. So you're watching a man aggressively and seductively manipulate another person's self-image and concept. Right. And it's really glaring. I mean, it's just, it's right there. You see someone manipulating another human being's mind, yeah. which, you know, in the circumstances is supposedly for the better. But when you see that, you know, there's a certain amount of hesitance in most people because it's, you know, I mean, it's it's pretty overt and aggressive. Yeah. You know? and, it, and it shows you very simply how uh, you can be uh, you can be changed in a very deep way just by somebody talking to you, which is yeah. right. It, it's it's horribly frightening, even yeah. if he's supposedly doing it for the good guys or for you or whatever the hell. But he's scary. I mean, he's got this grin and he's staring him down because he's using, um, you know, he's using a lot of body control techniques. Mm, yeah. So he's just like staring them right in the eye, hand on the shoulder, like just gripping them, like owning their body, you know, like taking away their control. I mean, just it's it's frightening to watch. But again, it's the the height of mind body technology, you know, maybe not the height. I don't know. They probably have better models. Does he keep telling people to get away from me after he changes them, or does he? Because I, I never understand. I never like imagined him as somebody that has like this group around him and a big, you know, and a, and a, whatever you want to call it, a cult. I, I never un- understood him as that kind of person, but maybe he is. Um, no, no, he frees them. That's the thing. He he tells them like that yeah. they can't, they don't want to be him. You know, like he makes he makes a clear distinction between him and them, and he provides them with mind technology. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a really eerie scene in the documentary where he encounters this woman who was, she grew up in the Children of God cult, which is like a Christian sex cult. Yeah. And so she was severely abused and like she has this really, he has what they, they have what they call red flags. So when the person gives their profile, um, if they've got suicide in their background or if they have some kind of mental instability, they're red flagged so they can be watched. And this woman was red flagged because of her personal history. So they often are the ones that are given the one-on-one intervention because he uses the ability of the crowd to overcome their trauma. So he's using the trauma of them being a centerpiece in the crowd and then him directing that experience to break their trauma. So I see. This, woman, this woman's singled out as, as a one-on-one intervention, but at the end of it, he hooks her up. He's like, you know, he does his intervention thing and, you know, it's he changes her and all that. But then he tells her, I'm going to connect you with a friend of mine who's a, a behavioral counselor And she's going to give you all the tools that I have. And you are going to learn what I know. And you're going to be given my power. But it's not my power. It's your power through the techniques and the technology. And he's like explaining to her essentially like you're going to now be trained to be, uh, you know, uh, a faith healer. I don't know, a performance coach, you know, whatever. But essentially making the differentiation between himself and these techniques. But he is, so he is pointing in her, her in a direction. He's not giving her the free will to do whatever. Well, he was, he was giving her the opportunity. She had sold off everything she had to get up there to the thing, to, to make it to this event. According to this, I mean, the documentary could be totally rigged, right? So yeah, who knows? Yeah, who knows? Uh, the, the, the story for her was that she had sold off everything and she was the she was kind of counseling the these people from the children of god cult yeah. and oh i see this so that was what she was doing anyway yeah she was like well sort of like she was it, she was doing it in a folky way like her family yeah. and her friends were part of this so she was counseling them but she was really at a, a kind of breaking point in her life yeah and so he essentially gave her a huge opportunity to get out of that I see. You know, yeah. whether or not it's a devil's bargain, I don't, you know, who knows, right? Like that, that's yet to be seen, I guess. But yeah, well, I, I'll have to watch it. I, I, I'm deeply suspicious of anything like this, which I, I think a lot of people are. But, well, you should. Uh, yeah. That's why you should watch it, because yeah. like you get to see the mechanisms. Like that's the, that's the shocking thing is that like you see the mechanism of it. So the suspicions are confirmed in terms of the... Uh, the thing itself, right? Whatever behind the thing or the motive of the thing, like that's not, who knows? Yeah. But what you see is the technology is there, you know, and it's crazy to mm-hmm. watch it, you know, yeah. in a dramatized Netflix documentary. Yeah. Well, I'll watch it even though, uh, the other thing is, uh, documentaries are the least honest type of filmmaking there is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, this is a, it's totally a commercial for, for Tony Robbins. Uh-huh. It's like, it's a it's a great commercial for Tony Robbins. Right. Yeah. yeah the absolutely. Other, the other thing that worried me is she spent everything to get there. It's like, what? Do you mean she only had $500 left and that's how much it costs to get there? Or <laughs> she, she paid $2,000 to get into Tony Robbins' seminar and that's how... Yeah, but obviously he has a lot of money. That, that part kind of worries me. Oh, um, yeah. No, that's the thing is these people, like, he's there as a beacon 
and people will throw all of their, you know, in the hopes of change, in the hopes of changing themselves. Yeah. They'll give everything. Well, you know what? If people get the tools and they leave happy and they, they don't have to come back and he's not continually asking them for money and uh, it's, not a, uh, it's not a self-perpetuating cult that he encourages and about 500 other questions I have, then fine. <laughs> but I still want to see it. <laughs> well, but that's the thing is that that's part of the product marketing and that's where this all gets weird is because then it turns into, you know, a lot of the human potential movement stuff is based on a, an affiliate marketing, uh, multi-tier marketing, multi-tier marketing, yeah. pyramid scheme marketing right. setup. And it's, it's crazy to see the two tied together because, you know, uh, Affiliate marketing and all that's essentially like a form of, uh, you know, mind hacking as well. Yes. And, and hacking the, hacking the, the economic system. Mm-hmm. So it's, very, it's weird to see those two things pair up so succinctly, but you've got like stuff like the, on the Ken Wilbur's, some of the boards that Ken Wilbur's on, um, you've got wild, wild, uh, shady entrepreneur guys <laughs> that, that I, are, I, I don't know like, who that is. Ken Wilbur, he's yeah. a part of he's part of the the whole. Oh, uh, oh, Wilbur, W I L B U R. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, Ken Wilbur. Yeah, yep. Um, but shady business stuff too, and it's amazing to see the two so closely aligned. Yeah. <laughs> the height of human potential is uh, extremely shady business practices, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. Uh, uh, I was just going to say, I guess it would have to be. No, it doesn't have to be. Actually, you can offer this uh, information for people for free. But there's a weird thing that people will, it's like the old subgenius thing. You'll pay to know what you really think. Right. It's, yeah, exactly. Like the, yeah. it's not, the information's not worth anything unless you pay a lot for it. You can't possibly have stumbled upon it yourself, you know, just through your own efforts. Some, you paid for it as, as a transaction, like a capitalist transaction. I pay you for something and I get something from it. If I don't pay you for it, it's free. Then it must not be, you know, it must not be worth it. it. Must not be any good if it just gave it to me. Whereas, that's true. Yeah, that a lot is of these true. people, all they'd have to do was go to a library and go on the internet for about <laughs> for about two weeks, and they probably get all the same information. It's just that uh, Tony shoves it in your face, and he's done all the all the footwork for you, apparently. Oh yeah, and he manhandles you and like massages you and kisses your head and yeah yeah. <laughs> you get the full you get the full work over it's it's yeah, not well, just like they're getting you know, their money's worth i guess it's just that uh, you know if yeah. if these people are spending their entire life savings and being thrown into desperate poverty with a with a um with an umbilical cord tied to the guru that that really bothers me if he, he takes their money and kicks them out the door and says don't come back here you're fine i kind of respect that <laughs> I think this one, it was inter- it's weird because, yeah, I mean, all those questions hover around it. In my mind, I hope that he saw the perfect student and that she's going to then rise up to be like another psychic super soldier, you know, like. Yeah, uh, human potentialing people out of their, their crappy yeah. lives and all that. I, yeah. all, that. That's the nice version, which I hope is it's- most of what it is. Well, yeah, that's the that's that's my hope as well. I don't I don't necessarily think that is the case but you yeah. know the trappings scare me but you know it, it, it's somewhere in the middle down there in the excluded middle there's a, a place where maybe some people are helped because um, most <laughs> people don't have the time or the or the energy or the the wherewithal to no. go do all this stuff on them by themselves they're, they're, well, they're that's, just surviving that's the, takes it out of them 
Well, and that's the th- when you see his daily routine and what he does to maintain the like high level of Tony Robbins that he exudes, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I it's wild. I mean, just the the such a regimented and strange routine for what would normally be someone's, you know, it's a lot of work. Yeah, or become, they yeah, or like, when the camera isn't on, is he sitting around eating burgers all day? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know it, it's just where i can i just like the ufo thing i cannot make my mind up on it there's good parts of it there's bad parts of it there's parts that scare me that's parts that say oh this would be great for people but that's my personality you know maybe if i gave him ten thousand dollars and my life suddenly became you know i was suddenly living the dream i wouldn't be speaking <laughs> like this would i well, I think that I think that you're right about the fact that you could probably do some like open source open source Robinsing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, get, and get all the power that you need. You know, it, I think if you really need that touch off spark where he like just grabs you and like imparts the anointing, then um, you know, then that would be worth three thousand dollars. But I think open sourcing it might be the sensible way to go. You know, yeah, if if people can do it. Um... Part of the, part of the reason every once in a while we just start talking about you know what do you do with your life why, why are we here all that that comes up on this show is for that very reason because years ago I read an article by Robert Anton Wilson in a little zine and uh, I think that's what changed my life and it had nothing to do with any you know the zine cost me six dollars or something right but it opened about you know it, it it's still opening doors twenty thirty whatever years later that's wild yeah that's that's to have that encapsulated in that that's crazy well it wasn't even yeah it wasn't exactly but i I just look at as you know a series of cascading whatever but that was i think that was the domino to me that that was the domino that got pushed that started not started knocking all the other ones down and like i said it's still going just having him say huh i wonder if science is it, it, it was an excerpt from um new inquisition i wonder if science is as has as much of a lock on reality as we think it does, and more importantly, the people involved in it that think they have a lock on reality and want to tell us that and that we're not allowed to think about other things and other ways to do things and that they might be wrong occasionally. That, that, that's a message of the book. Not that science sucks, but that the application of it, you know, like my thing, uh, any, all systems are perfect till people get involved. He pointed out that, and I'd never really heard it in that way. And then he put in, put in a few you know, little bits and pieces of, Look for yourself. Do this for yourself. See how it works for you. That really affected me for some reason at the time. I was open to it at the time. I could have, I could have gone to Tony Robbins, I guess, but I picked up an article right. by Wilson. <laughs> and that, that also freed you then from the $3,000 spend out on the Robbins. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that article gave you, gave you that as well. Yeah, well, I just started reading more of his stuff, and then the people he talked about, and, and it just it cascaded from there, and then I met my friends who we started the magazine, and all that, and now I'm doing a show and talking to you. So it all traces back to that for me. Yeah, and that's the thing about like the, the Wilson stuff's interesting, because it is so connective, and yeah. uh, you know it has that connectivity to it of that network of folks mm-hmm. that recognize it and can then, you know communicate and collaborate it's that's that's an amazing thing with that because it it really and and the fact that then it shows up in something like that where it's an article or it's a quote or it's a mention and then you you know go further from go further down that that line and then you start the meet the people and the yeah it's interesting how that has that effect 
That's why I mention this stuff on the show every once in a while. We'll go off into a guest, and I will go off into, well, what made you change your mind about so and so? You know, what what do you think you're doing with your life? What should other people do? What was helpful to you? Has nothing to do with UFOs or the paranormal, but I think it's it's far more important for people to know who they are, where they're going, and to be happy with what they're doing and curious and all that other stuff, which the stuff that makes life worth it. Oh yeah, well, especially with the fact that this. Uh these areas can quickly consume and uh, <laughs> and go dark quickly, you know. Yeah, that's you the other thing is to keep it generally out. positive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and freeing rather than you must do this thing because it's it's greater than you. Um, that that I don't agree. I don't agree with at least as a as a life path. Oh, you mean like ufology as a as a vision quest kind of thing? Like no, I think like that, a, that's fine too. But no, I mean a, a system of philosophy where it's they, somebody says this is the answer and this is a, this is the one true way. One, oh. true, one true way always pisses me off. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't stand that top down shit. Um, yeah, that, that's just my uh, personality. That, it's my personality. Oh, I realize it. <laughs> that's interesting. How so? So would you? Would you see? Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm now reflecting on like the different like I'm stuck in psycho cybernetics. I'm I'm like in a psycho cybernetics loop now. So I'm thinking of that in terms of like hmm. you know Robbins as a possible top down, and then if you place Robbins at the bottom of a pyramid, uh, my mind's going all over the place. I apologize. <laughs> Mine does that too. It does it constantly. I have to yeah. control it on the show. The only thing I, when yeah. I think of psych, psycho cybernetics was that stupid Maxwell Maltz book, which is. It it is you can either study Aleister Crowley or the Golden Dawn or uh, alchemy or whatever for years, or you can read Maxwell Maltz's book and have it all. <laughs> you can have it all in about an hour. <laughs> Dumb little book that I, I found for free somewhere because somebody told me you got to take a look at this book. It's like oh you know my who, god, who, who, this is all like, the BS stripped away. You know who really liked that book? No, it was Burroughs. Burroughs liked that book a lot. Oh, I didn't know that. It totally makes sense, though. I mean, that yeah. is Burroughs' message as well. Yeah. It's like, what, yes. do, what do people want? How do they get screwed up? Um, what do you do to fix it? How do you apply these things? And then, that's it. That's all you need. You just have to follow it. Right. You, have just, you, it you have to do it yourself. There's not somebody kicking your butt that you gave $3,000 to. Right. <laughs> yeah, screaming in your face and like... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I, I would encourage people listening to this show to find the book Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. It's, it's, it's a fascinating book. Um, I, like I said, I, I would been, had been reading all this, all this occult stuff for years, and then somebody pointed me to that book. A friend of Darren, actually, my friend Darren McGovern, he said, I think it was him, he said, take a look at this book. It's everything we've been talking about with, with all the trappings scri- uh, stripped away. <laughs> <laughs> That's and what's funny is that it actually comes out of the uh, the history of practical occultism. So it's kind of like yeah. a loop, you know. Oh yeah, you, you can tell that he pulled from those things. I'm, I'm pretty sure he did. Oh, he absolutely no, he absolutely did because uh, William Walker Atkinson, who was the guy behind the Kabbalion, um, was one of the founders of that style of thinking, mm-hmm. um, and he was a practical occultist who okay. wrote both business advice like self-help kind of tony robbins stuff mm-hmm. on end and then also wrote like uh, american yoga rosicrucian occultism on the other end oh okay never yeah. heard of him 
yeah, those two things are completely like woven together in terms of the actual like historical transmission of those ideas. By the time it gets to uh, psycho cybernetics, they had just like completely, like you said, stripped off all the trappings and gotten down just to the mechanics. Yeah. And like, you know, it's it's really interesting. Yeah. In plain 20th century, mid 20th century American English. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's kind of a miraculous book that not, not too many people talk about. Well, and that's why I thought the Robbins thing was so fast. He talks about invocations. Mm. You know how he like uh, does invoke. He did invocations to make himself who he is. He talks in very magical terminology at points, like when he's kind of more one on one. And so it's interesting to, uh, yeah, the, with the things like the psycho cybernetics, where um, you know, recognizing that it is essentially like a certain element of the mechanics of the occult experience, yeah, kind of stripped down. Yeah, it's it's uh, uh, mind hacking um, going back thousands of years. Yeah, and then the entities come, and and then it gets a little bit different. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> once you hack it where the entities show up and you're like oh wait what wait oh. uh, no this isn't what i was this isn't what i signed up this isn't what i paid my 495 for this book for <laughs> yeah this is not the better me <laughs> the better me is not being visited by light beings what's going on <laughs> then you start your own p- potential movement yeah <laughs> we've been talking for an hour uh do you want to go longer or do you want to um continue at another date that's up to you uh, it's, it's totally up to you i think we could uh, we could do either. We can continue on another date. Maybe they'll be fresh. Insight. Yes, I mean we, we just. I called you to get a smooth transition from the end of the show from being right. cut off to the end of the show, which was supposedly in three minutes, and we've gone for an hour, right. <laughs> <laughs> which I knew we'd do, which is fine. Um, the one thing I didn't get to to uh, let you do was to uh, call the um, end music. Your your cho- your choice. Oh, and also, if there's any place you uh, people want to visit to read things that you've written, I see a lot of it on Facebook, actually. Yeah, I put up. Uh, I'm using Facebook as a publishing platform because it's simple. So I do write a lot on Facebook, and then sometimes edit those into bigger pieces. My Medium site, um, which is however Medium's uh, link. Yeah, the the site so, Medium. But- yeah. Yeah, it's David B. Metcalf on there. Um, That's where a lot of stuff... I've got some stuff up on Reality Sandwich. Um, Oh, that's right. People can go to the-message.bandcamp.com to hear uh, my sound work. Okay, z-message-bandcamp. Oh, B, B. The-message, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because when you said Bandcamp, it got uh, uh, Skype z- uh, zapped it a little bit. So okay. Uh, what what uh, should we play? Your music? What do you want to hear? Um. I was so I was thinking about that originally. You asked me that, and I thought uh, the Stranglers waiting for the Men in Black. But then I was thinking maybe um, Six Organs of Admittance, Visions of Io. Let's go with Visions of Io. That's a little bit more pleasant. Okay, I'm not. I, I've never even heard of this. There we go. Visions from Io. It says. Yeah, yeah. And thanks so much. And every time we talk, we just keep going, and that's the best kind of conversation. So, well, it's always good to talk to you, man. Yeah, same here. Thanks so much, David. Yeah, thank you. Take care. You too.
It's a dream.